July 19th, 2017. A young Steve Strapple clicks Add to Cart on Amazon.com. The purchase? The Pathfinder First Edition Advanced Player's Guide. After monopolizing his roommate's Pathfinder First Edition core rulebook for the past year of playing Rise of the Rune Lords campaign, this would be his first, but far from last, purchase of many Pathfinder hardcover rulebooks and world-building supplements. What Steve didn't know was that three years later, he would be assembling a panel of experts to review this very book before a rabid fanbase of listeners, though updated, for the Pathfinder 2nd Edition rule set. Could this Gen Con 2020 drop live up to the excitement of receiving his first hardcover Pathfinder rulebook in the mail all those years ago? Find out now. This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I welcome a panel to the show for a very special review of Paizo's Pathfinder 2E Advanced Player's Guide. We dive in to analyze the new classes, ancestries, feats, and more packed into this massive expansion of the 2E system. I'm your host, Steve, in studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. And we're back. Yeah, we're back. I'm hyped for this one. We're we're back in a big way. Back, I'm excited. Back in black. Whew. Griff, you heard the intro. You know what we're doing. We got a lot to talk about. And I say that pretty much every episode, but this time I kind of mean it. There's a ton. But at the top of this episode, I do want to thank our friends at Paizo yes. for allowing us to do this review because they did get us the advanced player's guide couple weeks early so we could delve in yes. get all the information for you fine folks so thank you paizo we really appreciate uh the early pdf uh but that said we are not currently affiliated with paizo and so these this review will be a unbiased one other than the fact that they gave us the rule book that's true we have our uh stringent ethical standards to uphold um we can't be bought Unless someone wants to try and buy us off. In which case, please uh, do. It hasn't happened yet. Um, But yeah, the second edition advanced player's guide dropped on the 30th of July. This episode is going to be coming out on the 3rd of August. So we had a couple weeks to review. I have been up to my shoulders in this book. I love it. It's very cool. Um, Lots of stuff to discuss. And to do that, we have assembled a crack team of experts. Absolutely. These are some of the people that dive in hardest. When when a new rule book is released, they're just going to read right through the pages. Maybe read absolutely directly through the pages and we'll have to get a new book. That's that's very fair and in some cases true. Uh first and foremost, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, rather back to the podcast. You've heard him several times on here before. Um he goes by Telonius Monk in most social medias, but you might know him as Matumbe Lover 69 on our Discord. It's Tim. What up? Tim's been playing Pathfinder longer than I think any of us have. Um, and I know he's excited to be here today, aren't you? The crack helps. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said that I was a crack. Oh, it's in your contract. Was... No. Can't... Oh, shit. Sh- 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 Sorry. At a point, at a point. Um, Tim, glad to have you here today. Glad to be back. And I couldn't be more excited to be talking about this book because this, this, is, this is what, like, 
for me is bringing the Pathfinder magic to Pathfinder 2nd Edition. I'm so excited. All right, great. Uh, Next up, of course, you know her from the show. She's on every damn episode. She is our admittedly Pathfinder 2nd Edition skeptic. Welcome to the show, Haley. Oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here uh, and was happy to be able to read through this despite being a skeptic. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you here. Really excited to uh, to see what you have to say about these changes to the system. Now, this one, this last panel guest, there was a lot of internal debate on the HLP whether he deserved to be back talking about second edition. (laughs) Eventually, cooler heads prevailed. Welcome to the show. You know him as Krusty Crust on the Discord. Um, he was Romier in Pavlos and Pales. He brings the water up out of the ground with spells every time. Welcome aboard, Chris. They're not going to get that, but hello! <laughs> Forming this panel was like a uh, like a heist montage, almost. Asking everyone to come in. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was very Pavlos and Pals. <laughs> Except mm-hmm. it was immediate, you son of a bitch, I'm in. You son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> yep. Well... Now that we have introductions out of the way, let's go around the horn here and just uh, as we begin all things, discuss what everyone's drinking today. Let's start with uh, Haley. Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm drinking mango rum and um, cherry crystal light. So all right. I'm having a great drink. Uh, but I see that I am the odd man out. Well, I guess odd woman out in, multi- in two ways, I guess. Curse your gluten intolerance. <laughs> this is true. Um, Imported all the way from West Virginia. I brought back um, some rough looking beverages. Uh, big 24, uh, 25 ounce cans. I'm splitting one with Tim. Chris and mm. Griffin are splitting the other one. We have, uh, Tim and I have a Budweiser and Clamato with salt and lime. And Chris, what, what, what variant do you guys have? Well, uh, we have the light Clamato that Bud Light put out. I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, I think. Uh, I think it's Clamato. You say Clamato, he says Clamato. I think it's Clamato. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't think any of us have tried this yet. I'm worried. No. So um, I, By smell, it doesn't seem... Mm. I'd like to say... It smells like tomato juice. I don't know. If you thought it'd be thick like tomato juice, it's incredibly thin. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Another review, Zot. Oh, you know what? It's It's different. It's certainly different. It's a lot thinner than tomato juice, but... I don't hate it. That's actually not bad. It's not bad. I can see why people might order this. It definitely yeah. seems like a morning beverage, I'd say. Yeah. It's pretty. You, get, you definitely get the tomato juice. I guess I'm, I'm drinking the light one, but like there's also a slight metallic aftertaste. But like other than that, it's pretty good. <laughs> you know what? That's because yeah. it's making your mouth bleed. I think it's like <laughs> leaded maybe. Because like be. uh, the carbonation is not too strong, which is what I was worried about. Like yeah. being kind of beery. Yeah, you know what? I think overall, I I don't hate it. I expected to really hate it, but it works. Well, Steve, is there anything else you wanted to do up at the top? Yes. I have Sirenscape pulled up, so I couldn't possibly forget. Today, we're going to be hanging out in the Oriental Tavern, listening to the Tavern Bard. Ah... What a, what a calming sound. Mm, I'll drink my Clamato juice to that. Okay. So basically the way that we structured this review is we're going to give it a, we're all going to give it an individual rating at the very end, which we will get to, but we broke the book up into uh, separate distinct sections. 
So the first one is the Ancestries. And I'm going to kick it off with a quick look at Catfolk. This is a new addition to second, uh, ad- new addition to second edition. Um, but yeah, they're called Amurans. Uh, curious and gregarious wanderers. Catfolk combine features of felines and humanoids in both appearance and temperament. Uh, they love new things, tales, trinkets. Um, view themselves as chosen guardians of natural places in the world and are often recklessly brave. Guys, uh, I was reading a lot about the cat folk and they sound a lot like actual cats. A lot of um, yep. their appearance. Their appearance is written as as varied as IRL cats, um, but they're bipedal. So they stand on their back legs. Um, their feet are paws, but their hands are like human hands almost, which is a little strange. Um, but the their, their head is like a full cat head and they have a tail. I um, would consider you resident expert on the movie Cats. From the musical? Yeah, are we going to get a right. uh, Jellicle drop? Would you say that this is similar? Jellicle I, drop? Um, Tim, I would say this is shockingly similar oh, to Cats right. the Musical. Any one of the cats I've seen in this rule book could fit in just fine here. The cat folk get a bump to charisma and dexterity. A little bit of a hit to wisdom. Um, one of the things I wanted to call out is that they have a built-in trait that's called land on their feet. It's a legit trait. That they, you know, if they're falling from any height, they may still take damage, but they never fall prone. They're always on their feet, which is funny. I don't like that. Also, great. Yeah, they uh, they can purr and growl, which uh, will lead to some interesting role play. Op, some interesting feats around those things too. Absolutely, Gla- uh, glad you brought it up here. So. Some of them get a, a get a get a natural attack, and one of the things that I really that really stood out to me was aggravating scratch, which when you do damage with your claws, you get an additional one d four persistent poison damage on a crit, and that's kind of like that cat scratch fever in real life, right? Where you get scratched by a cat and it kind of flames up a little bit. I also really liked a couple more. The other two that I want to talk about are the black cat curse, which is really cool. It's a reaction. Basically, if an enemy succeeds at a save that you force it to take, you force them to re-roll. Pretty cool. Um, Another reaction that they have is called a caterwaul. Um, This is a reaction where if an ally close to you is brought down to zero hit points, your cat howls, which I would fully expect any of us to roleplay at the table, that full howl. Yeah, you can't use that feat if you don't roleplay. Yeah, exactly. That's a good taste. Just a little yeah, taste of that. Just a little right. taste of what, what we offer here. Um, but what happens is when you do that very convincing caterwaul, Tim, thank you very much. Um, that ally that would have gone to, to zero and dying goes gets wounded one and a hit point, but doesn't drop unconscious. So that's really a bad cool. deal. I really like it. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to touch on a couple of the cool things about uh, cat folk. Um, I think probably the next uh, show that the HLP puts out, if it goes into second edition, we'll all be cat folk reenacting the movie uh, 2019 Cats. Uh, moving on. Another point of inspiration. I mean, if you if you look up on YouTube Cats in Heat and just watch and listen to their. Stop. It's too you, early. For if this. You, no, if you listen to that. It's just good inspiration. That's all I'm saying for the Caterwall. What are you doing looking that up? I'm not doing it. Though. Our listeners are doing it. I guess. <laughs> uh, Tim, if you want to talk about animals in heat, how about you talk to me about kobolds a little bit? 
Yeah, I have less experience with lizards and heat, but I will say that the kobolds, um, of course, it's a, it's a callback to a lot of characters that you may have made in Pathfinder First Edition, but they updated it a little bit to make it, I would say, playable because the first edition kobold was straight up garbage. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay. Unless you went the dragon disciple route. Okay. It was pretty bad. But this is much more, it feels much more core. Like I could make any character I want with a kobold. It gets a small size, a boost to dexterity and charisma, flaw to constitution. But the most important part about the kobold, flavor-wise, is probably its tie-in as like a little mini dragon. So you get to pick a dragon subtype to to kind of uh, right away at first level. Like what color are you going to be? What type of damage is your related attacks uh, going to be related are going to be so is it going to be acid for a black dragon for example which uh, can play into your later abilities so as you as you level up as a kobold your ancestries are going to kind of tie in to if you choose the breath weapons and related stuff or you know any of the the things that are giving you spells from kind of the it kind of kind of ties into the the dragon blood sorcerer or the bloodline, the dragon bloodline. Um, it'll it'll be reflecting on whatever you chose at first level. So uh, yeah, like there's a lot of ways, a lot of directions to go with the kobold. You can make anything you want. Finally, the kobold barbarian is viable. <laughs> People um, have been waiting for it. Yeah, because uh, yeah. So that's actually what I decided to make. I made a uh, uh, taking taking my way, picking my way through this book. I made some characters. And one of the first ones I made was a callback to Rise of the Rune Lords, Enga, the barbarian who guards the uh, the fortress under Jorgenfist. She was one of my favorite NPCs. She ended up helping the PCs out and played a bigger role than she had any right to in our campaign. I made her into a barbarian, and it felt really good. You're able to do some things like um, grovel, for example. Dude, I loved the flavor behind the kobold feats, especially yeah. it's like a grovel snivel. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Um, so, so groveling is kind of, um, uh, you're able to do like a ranged faint attack. Uh, you're using instead of your, uh, your, your normal faint with uh, diplomacy, like you're using a different skill like deception or something. Um, and then they become flat footed after you faint. So, uh, as far as I know, this is one of the only ways you can open up for a range, like flat-footed sneak attack, which is really interesting. Another one I thought was great was the, uh, I think it's a first-level feat called Dragon's Presence. Um, because kobolds are kind of bold, and uh, actually they're kind of like cats in this way, they like pick on things bigger than their own size maybe, mm-hmm. you would get, anytime there's a fear effect, you would get a uh, a bonus to this to succeed and if you get a success it bumps it up to a critical success but on the other hand kobolds uh also collapse catastrophically against the deadliest foe and so if they fail they take a critical failure and usually that ends up them running away and hiding and all this shit so a lot of different ways to go with the kobold i love the update to their art as well yes um, yes so they they kind of look more like their their faces are more like a typical lizard and they also have these little uh, horns kind of like an axolotl the little yeah I felt mm, like they almost yeah. they almost look more salamander like yeah or, like a salamander and, mm-hmm. which 
personally, I like them a little bit more draconic, but okay. I, I can still appreciate where they're coming from with it. I think they look a lot cuter. They do they're look cuter. Good. I will say the, that. The one, and I can see it across the across the table that Haley's looking at. There's this little blue guy that's like setting a bear trap. Um, one of the first ones you see in the book, and it's just it's just kind of a cute photo. I like it. Adorable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is another great uh, thing they took in from the kobolds in 1E. They're really good at uh, crafting traps. So you can kind of get those early snare setting. And then later on, you can uh, you can pick up the like three action set up a snare. Um, and that way, without diving into anything ranger, you can just have sort of like a, a little bit of snare activity going on. Awesome. That's They'd the, probably synergize really well with the um, the trap setter archetype in here. Oh, yeah. Because that just sure. would build on it then, I imagine. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you can free up your feats a little bit to do some other stuff. Well, well, thanks for taking a look, Tim. Um, let's keep it moving here. The next race uh, that that was introduced for this book is one. I, I should. I, sorry, ancestry that was uh, introduced for this book um, was one that was a little bit of a surprise to me, honestly. It's full orc. Full orc. Yeah, baby. I'm gonna take us through the full orc. It didn't surprise me though, Steve, because there are orc feats in the core rule book, mm. and no orc. Oh yeah. <laughs> You got to have the orc coming soon after that if you want to keep those feats there and keep the half orc with new options. So the full orc, another big change up from first edition, much like the kobold got turned into a more playable character. The orc went from this kind of feral, monstrous race that had a bunch of strength, bunch of physical negatives and all the mental stats mm -hmm. to kind of like a human. Yeah. Humans get two free ability upgrades. Orcs get strength and one free and no flaws. And oh, that's, that's really nice. cool. That puts them kind of in a unique spot. We have a lot of races that are like dex charisma free and then minus to wisdom or intelligence. Uh, but orcs are pretty unique in that regard. One thing from their description in 2E that I had to call out because... Uh, because we give Brooks a lot of crap for it on the show for having a gray orc. Oh, man. Straight from the Advanced Player's Guide, orc skin color is typically green and occasionally gray, though some orcs have other skin colors that reflect ad adaptations to their environments. Gray is specifically called out here, and so, Brooks, kudos. You, you get it. He's just <laughs> a man ahead of his time is what he is. Uh, so so orcs have a, have a lot of varied heritages I, I know all of them do but orcs ha are very unique in that they when they're in settlements have are kind of form these holds and so hold scarred is one of the one of the orc heritages and it gives you instead of 10 racial hit points 12 racial hit points and die hard as a feat which oh. is money for a heritage i really liked that I also really enjoy how every feat that's been listed in here, mm -hmm. um, about half of them have one of the core rulebook feats as a prereq. Because there were orc feats in the core rulebook, I think they included a little bit less orc feats here because it was pretty fleshed out in there, but a lot of it expands on the stuff that half orcs could do uh, in a really cool way. One thing that never really got fleshed out in first edition that you always think of when you think of orcs is the tusks that they have. And they put that into a first level ancestry feat that you have to take at first level, but it gives you a natural attack that does a D six of damage with your tusks, a bite attack, which is just awesome. Uh, going off of that though, they have 
another feat at level five. They have a, they have a feat at level one that lets your uh, unarmed strikes do lethal damage as well. But then a fifth level feat that's bloody blows. Any natural attacks you get from the orc ancestry or otherwise cause bleed. Dear God. It's Big. amazing. Juicy. Uh, the other one I wanted to call out is a 13th level feat called Spell Devourer. And it's... <laughs> First of all, great name. Great name. Um <laughs> So, so orcs as a society kind of resist magic. They're they're all based off of strength. Like the societies are built on strength, and there's a lot of fighting to gain a new to to become dominant in a society. And because of that, they don't really trust magic. And that's how they're kind of written in here. Although they're they're not as bestial as they were in first edition, but they're written like that in here. And so, the feat is: you don't just resist magic; you devour it. Whenever you succeed at a saving throw against a spell or magical effect, you gain temporary hit points equal to double the spell's level or equal to the level of the magical effect, or if, if the magical effect isn't a spell. These temporary hit points last until the end of your next turn. So you just take the spell, you succeed on the on the reflex save or whatever it is, and you just eat the power of the spell and heal. It's You're only so making cool. him stronger. You're only making him stronger. And then the final thing I will say is like at at level 17 if you take the um if you take their level 17 feat in this book which is the rampaging ferocity you basically can't go down as long as there's something for you to kill you cannot be killed unless there's something for you to kill because if you if you would enter your ferocity because you got brought down to zero you get as a reaction a hit on somebody if you knock them out it doesn't count against your ferocity, and you can still be you can still be up, and it doesn't count. So, oh, it's so That's flavorful cool. and nice. Great. Keep going. Uh, great for half works too. Uh, I think I think this book really fleshed out how I could envision like Ikmer being built. Well, yeah, because any oh, yeah. of the any of these orc feats you can take as a half orc. Yep, right? exactly, That's and a, you can yeah. mix them with human feats, which I'll get to when I I'm going to talk a little bit about one human feat after we finish these that I uh, particularly love and I think is perfect for an Ikmer type character. Ooh, nice little tease here. Um, so we're going to keep moving on. The next one is one that I expected a little bit, right? You had, uh, you had this in, in not only in one E, but also in Starfinder. naturally, of course it's going to show up in two E it's the rat folk. Haley, tell me about the rat folk. I got the rats. Um, so the rat folk are, they are very much like rats, uh, which I like that they do keep some of that similarity. Um, but there is, um, like, it's, I find it really interesting because they say like up to a hundred of them would be living together, which is insane because if you also read the way that their names are created, sorry, this is just a weird side note that I have to talk about because literally the way their names are created is like each family only has 12-ish names and then they just... <laughs> Like, base names, and then they build off of that. So, like, the example they give is Griver could be a grandfather's name, and then the granddaughter would be Griva and Grive, and, like, literally that's how they, like, make their names. So imagine up to 100 of them living together with 12 base names. Very confusing. <laughs> yes. And that's addition- like George Foreman naming all his sons George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. But, like, you know, rat folk, they, they do like to, uh, you know, keep junk, which is what you'd expect. They have, you know, pack rat type feet. Uh, again, that's all stuff you'd expect. They talk about how clean they are and how, like, methodical they are and how they tinker. These are all things I would expect of, like, a rat folk. Um, the one thing, though, like, is super weird that got added that makes me, like, kind of uncomfortable with the lore of your own rats 
um, is the fact that you can have a rat familiar at the beginning. Yeah, that's like. Hang on, it gets worse. You can. Sorry, but it gets so oh, no, much I was gonna worse. Say, that, that's like every time Goofy interacts with Pluto, and it's like yes. they're both dogs, but one's like a higher being of dog, I guess. Yeah, so like you'd have this pet rat that's like magically bonded to you, whatever. So that's level one. Level two, you um are like level five, so then you're not next feet, right? You just have rat magic, which is there's always a little rat around to carry messages to you. Um, yeah, that's freaking weird. So now I envision that there's rats all over this four foot tall rat. There's little rats inside of them somewhere. And then if you keep going, you eventually can just turn into a rat. This is a problem to me. This is very <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, Chris had a really good comparison earlier. Yeah, it's like uh, in the in the Pokemon um, show, they would show like in the water gym, there'd be water Pokemon, but there'd be yeah. fish in the aquarium swimming around. I was like, what are those? What do they do? <laughs> Excuse me, what? Um, but otherwise, like, I mean, it is really cool, and I absolutely adore the art. There is a very pretty rat lady that uh, I love oh, and adore. The, the posh Isoki right there. Mm -hmm. she, she's adorable. Um and, you know, they have a lot of lab with cheek pouches, kind of like the way that the Yosoki and Starfinder have. Um, and I really also want to just talk about, like, the at fifth level, there is this stuff about lab rat. And so it is um, interesting that it, it comes up on, like, the, the feet five, right? Um, it's is a test subject or an assistant to an alchemist or you were an alchemist, etc. And it's, it's just an interesting flavor um, because they don't really have a lot that is... At first level, so it's kind of interesting where it comes in, hmm. but I think it's still kind of interesting uh, as a whole. You know, I don't necessarily love the connotation of that either, though. No, I hate like, it. Yeah. I hate that. Like, they're a they're a sentient sapient uh, ancestry here, and they're they're getting tested on the lab. Like, I, I almost wish they would have just uh, called these rat folk Yusoki uh, to just to put them as like something different? that's not yeah. a rat. Well, it, like, it's like the Amarun or however you say the cat folk. Yeah. Like, they call themselves Yusoki. I guess. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. yeah, the language in there is Yusoki. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, it is really weird. You're like, am I a rat? Again, I love, I like, love the idea of it, and I want to play a fancy lady rat at some point, but, like, also, there's a little bit of weird things. In addition, like, you know, one of them is rat speak. You can squeak to rats and other rodents. Your GM decides what animals count as rodents. That's also just weird to me. Well, I don't think your GM could just decide that. <laughs> there's taxonomies. <laughs> and, I mean, we, it we says it. <laughs> there, there are rules outside of Pathfinder for this. But otherwise, like, I actually, I, I do enjoy it, and I want to play, like, a lady rat. There's um, some cool heritage heritages um, about different types of rats. And I also adore the fact that they, because their houses are so chaotic, there's a whole string of feats regarding how good you are at puzzles and like navigating complicated areas. That's funny. Yeah, I like it's, that. it's fantastic. It's literally called a war na navigator and like you're particularly good at solving puzzles and mazes and twists and turns. It's great. I, I love that whole chain as well. So overall, there's some weird things, but some good things. Hmm. <laughs> Which leads us uh, pretty, pretty smoothly to our next point. Um, <laughs> weird, but good. <laughs> weird, but good. We had asked Chris to come on the show to talk about the APG and he said I'm not going to do it unless I can talk about this one new ancestry. Yeah, there was a lot of um there was a lot of people asking to play a bird in too, you know, the core rulebook had a lot of bird focused stuff in it. So people are like, <laughs> you know, I want to be a bird and there's a new ancestry Tengu that gives you that. So Tengu was in 1E. They hail from Tianjia, the character the ancestry itself draws from a lot of eastern influence. The just mechanic wise, they have six hit points, medium creature, 25 foot move speed. 
Um, ability boost, there's no flaw. You have an ability ability boost to dexterity and then a free boost as well. So you're locked into one, unlike some other no-flaw ancestries. You don't get the ability to fly right away. Um, what you do get, just off the bat taking the ancestry, is a sharp beak. So you can do 1d6 piercing with your beak just all the time. It's got unarmed finesse traits for some other classes that, you know, use those types of traded weapons. Well, it's something I've noticed. Uh, these new ancestries... Big into the natural attacks. Yeah, I think you yeah. have the yeah. more bestial ancestries, though, coming into this book. And even, like, you know, speaking to an orc being bestial mm -hmm. before, like, giving them that stuff is really cool. I love that they get that without a feat, though. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just baked that's in. That's strong. Um, some of the heritages are interesting. There's a jinxed tengu that um, gives you some extra, um, you, you, you save better against um, fortune, curse, or for misfortune effects. There's stuff in there that you can you can get a disrupt and dead cantrip with your heritage, which is is going to be good in some cases for some campaigns. Um, in terms of ancestry feats, the big trends that I saw in this are there's basically two big paths to take through your ancestry. One is um, as you advance in feats, you get better at better at flying. I think the fifth level feat that you, let, lets you hop up as an action. Um, some higher level ones let you soar for a minute as like gain, you gain a fly speed essentially. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is, is if you don't want to fly, they have um, some Tengu weapon familiarity that scales at each feet. And there's some pretty interesting um, exotic weapons in this. You can get um, katana proficiency uh, if you want to be all mall ninja and stuff with your your Tengu. Um, temple sword, and then there's another sword that I'm just not going to even bother trying to pronounce. It's like, a, uh, Is that the Wiyazashi or something? Yeah, I would yeah. not have said it that way. So if that's right. I don't know probably. if that's right. It's, it's a small, it's like a small katana. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I noticed that they they added a bunch of weapons to fit the ancestries, and so you can access all these like interesting traits and stuff on there. Absolutely, yeah. A couple of the uh, interesting feats I want to call out. There's um, there's one at first level called Squawk, which I think is hilarious. Again, one you would have to roleplay, I believe. You would have to. You would have to actually squawk as as a bird. And how um, would you do that? Well, I you know I'm not a I haven't Tim. I'm not trained in that. <laughs> I think that's that's spot on. It's kind of close to his caterwaul, but it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's some subtle accent differences. I don't know if you picked up on it. Yeah. So this is for more like social characters. If you ever um, crit fail a charisma check, like uh, deception diplomacy, you can just ruffle your feathers and squawk a little <laughs> bit. And like people will be distracted by that. And you'll only fail instead of crit fail, <laughs> which is hilarious. But by far the most hilarious feat in this. Maybe in the game. I know maybe what you're going to yes, say. Yes. Maybe in the full game is the fifth level feat long-nosed form. <laughs> yep. yes. as, as just an action, you can transform into a very curious-looking human. You have, like, roughly humanoid traits except for your nose, which was the same size as your beak before you transformed. So nope. you just... It's 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 it functions as a disguise. It's not a very good one. People can attempt to like look at you and say you're not a human. Look at your freaking nose. You know? It reminds me very much of the movie Spirited Away. That uh, there's like a this old witch character who just has is basically a big head with a huge nose. You you get yeah. Anyways. Right. Well, no, no offense, Paizo, but like uh -uh. To the the art that you've done exactly. for the Tengu, if that's the case, like some of these things beats yeah, yeah. are like, so, like their whole head. huge emphasis oh, on man, the very like, curious looking. They're, they're, they're the I'm, size I'm, of their forearm. I was gonna say I'm doing some quick measurements here uh, of beak to like hand. It was hand all the way up to elbow um, on the one beak. So and then also I did another quick measurement. The other one is the beak is the same size as the rest of their head. So 
a very curious looking human. Yeah, very I would, curious. I would imagine <laughs> that I don't I don't know how this is, but it, since this is inspired by like uh, Japanese mythology, I imagine there's some sort of uh, art direction that that uh, they were taking on this. To, but they look pretty grouty. I, yeah. In the book. And just to clarify, because I know you're asking, um, when in this form you can't attack with your beak, quote unquote. <laughs> your nose is no longer sharp, you don't get piercing damage anymore. It's just it's just a stupid long nose. I would have and, thought they'd change it to bludgeoning, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> or acid. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for taking us in that enlightening trip through the Tengu ancestry. Um Included in this book, as well as just these brand new ones, were a, a new type of ancestry called versatile ancestries. I'm really crazy excited about this. Um, basically, you can be a regular ancestry and then also have some cool flavor mixed in there. Um, and to talk about our first one, which is Changeling, Haley's going to take us through that. So so if, if you could just kind of explain to the people at home... What like how does how does this work? Yeah, so personally, like I I adore the plan and thought through this um, because, for example, right, Nana Opal is a changeling in One mm-hmm. uh, E, and that is a like that is its own separate like advanced race. So it's not at all this kind of uh, basically it feels like a template that you can throw on your character. Yeah, it's essentially the heritage. So every race has yeah. several heritages. You just pick one of these as your heritage instead. Right. Yep. And so it's it's really cool because, um, right, f- so he- the heritages in general are w- my actual favorite thing about 2E in general, but um, adding this to and just having these, um, basically, again, it feels just like a template you throw on your character and you can be anything. So within the changeling itself, uh, number one, like ch- I love changeling lore uh, just about in any type of uh, literature, not just like Pathfinder based. But I do like how they come out and they explicitly uh, kind of say the different types. So, you know, if it's a sea hag, it's a brine may. So they kind of go through all these different types um, and of changelings you can be. And that does change the color of your eye and it gives changes like stuff about you. So there's all of that. But I do think one of the big things is they go much further into the call, which I felt as though Pathfinder 1E didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice to hear that they're going a lot further into the call. Which, if you don't know, that is um, basically a changeling at some point in their life will experience the call back to their mom's side, which is the se- the, ha- the hag side. Um, and they can try to resist it or they can just embrace it or, you know, all of these different things. So I absolutely adore that they've gone through that. And in fact, there is a feat, a fifth level feat that is called called, um, which means you've already heard the call and you're in you're constantly resistant to that demand. And I like that with um, a combination of something else that we'll talk about a little bit later, because I think that you can get into a lot of flavor with this. And I, I'm really excited. And, and again, also want to play a changeling at some point. And I have the possibility now to potentially do a lady rat changeling. There, there it is. That's, oh, yeah. that's what I wanted to hear. The implication here with these new quote unquote ancestries that are actually more like heritages is that you can mix and match a little bit. So in 1E, a changeling was basically like a humanoid creature. But in 2E, you could have like a leshy changeling mm-hmm. or a dwarven changeling. It just, it, it adds a new different flavor in there that I really, really enjoy. And you can mix and match and have some really cool, unique characters. And speaking about a cool, unique ancestry that um, 
I'm sure he's going to make one at some point because he does love them in one E. Griffin, tell me about Dampiers. Yeah, so I had to I had to do the Dampier because mm-hmm. I'm currently playing a 13th level Dampier investigator or inquisitor rather. Dampiers are awesome. They're part vampire uh, through either uh, one of your parents was a vampire or your mother became a vampire during pregnancy or some sort of ritual happened that turned you into one, but they keep the negative energy affinity that they had in first edition. So you heal from negative energy. They also, your, uh, your vision gets increased by a step. So if you're a human, you get low light vision. If you're a gnome, you get dark vision, but again, this can be applied to any ancestry. Uh, One thing that I wanted to point out, and Haley touched on it with the different types of hags Mm -hmm. that you can be, uh, those are actually called lineages. And uh, I think all but the Duskwalker in this book have lineages. Lineages are essentially a heritage for your heritage. Yep. Yeah. And it, so so they said, "Do you oh, you like heritages? Let's put a heritage in your heritage." They cost you a first level feat. You have to take them at first level, but uh they're they're essentially the type of that lineage that or the type of that heritage, that versatile heritage you came from. So for a vampire, you have uh Stravecchia or Nosferatu born. Those give you uh better perception against sense motive and then they make it harder for other people to tell when you're lying. So they increase that DC. Uh and then you have Svetchers or Morori born. Uh those decrease or they they make the drained penalty one lower in terms of the HP and fortitude save consequence. And they also make you trained in diplomacy. There were, I think, five of these in uh, five of these lineages for the first edition Dampier, uh, like the Jiangxi and a bunch of others. Uh, so I'm hoping that eventually, you know, as we get some splat books and stuff, maybe these get expanded a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the the feats I really love, though. So you guys know I love what we do in the shadows. And obviously... Um, Laszlo or Matt Berry's character is my favorite character on that show. So I picked two feats that I think uh, if you wanted to make a character like Laszlo, you would pick up. Uh, So the first is a level five feat uh, called Enthralling Allure. Uh, The powers of domination employed by your progenitors have manifested in you as well. So you can cast Charm as a first level divine innate spell. And a 13th level spell called Form of the Bat. Oh, yes. Bat. Oh, yeah. Bat. <laughs> so uh, once per hour, you can transform into a harmless bat. You gain the effects of fourth level pest form, except you always transform into a bat. Uh, so, again, there, there's there's some very flavorful things that make you feel like you're a vampire. Make you feel like there's you can grow fangs. You get fang, There's fangs as a natural attack. You can make those bloodletting fangs. There's so much cool stuff in these versatile heritages that are very interesting when combined with something like a cat folk, right? Mm-hmm. You could you could make a cat folk vampire and at level five have three natural attacks your claws and and the these fangs and it's it's very interesting the combinations you can make yeah i absolutely love it um the next little section of versatile archetypes dives into something called planar scions first one is asimar Haley, you want to talk about it yeah um now this one's like actually a little bit different so it 
it's not as similar to the changeling where it's, it is you just kind of throw it on whatever other type of character you want to play um, because it does say a couple times that it is always recognizably a member of their humanoid ancestry. Hmm. So it doesn't feel as as versatile, like realistically, because that's how they're described. Um, as it's humanoid no matter what. So like, I don't know if it is as realistic to have um, an asthma or rat folk, right? Well, so, I think any race that's playable is considered humanoid in, in second edition. So like a rat folk is still a humanoid. I see. I didn't hmm. uh, read it that way. Uh, what they mean to say is that you're... Even though you're part angel, you're recognizable as a rat folk. Like people could tell that you're a rat folk, but you have these special things about Subtle you, like features. a halo or whatever. Gotcha. That's that's interesting then, because I was reading this and I was like, huh, that's a little bit weird. Because yeah, it doesn't. The changeling isn't described like that at all. It's, it constantly talks about you look like your father's heritage. So. Um, mm. It's just kind of interesting, and then I I really appreciate the fact uh, as far as like just some general RP stuff, they're, they find themselves in positions of leadership even when they don't try um, because <laughs> they just like generally have this natural aura of uh, divine, basically. And so they kind of are always uh, like that, which is, which is interesting. And then as far as like the lineage like uh, or the feats in general, because not all of them are lineage um, based, but there's one that I think is funny, which is just a halo of light is around you at all times. So you have halo. But there are um, a couple different lineages. One is uh, the entire, like, it's just angel line. So you can just become an angel over time, um, which is interesting as, as as well, just because you get, you really do become wings eventually, like you get wings. Um, the other thing is like a law uh, bringer, which comes back to um, archons. Is that how you say it? Yep. Archons. And um, so you basically eventually become an archon. So it's like, interesting because... Within the Asmar uh, versatile feats, you end up almost becoming what you originally came from. Um, so <laughs> the last lineage with this is the Azadas. Um, so it's just, again, very interesting because uh, different from the Changeling, which is you can really go against how you get your heritage. Um, Asmar is like everything kind of leads you eventually to where you came from. Yeah, if you t- if you keep taking Asimar feats, you yeah. kind of culminate into something rather than Changeling is like, oh, here's a special thing I got for resisting, or here's a thing I got because I I'm more witchy, so I get to right. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, it feels like um, if you keep going down this route, it's it's less it's you just morphing over time. Um, so yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for taking us through that. Um, next one up of these planar scions, Duskwalker. This one's another Griff one. This is hands down my favorite ancestry versatile heritage in this book. This <laughs> is this is I'm so proud of Paizo for putting this in because this was a Planar Adventures one of their last really published late. first yeah. edition mm-hmm. uh races in first edition and and now it's in the first list of versatile Heritages. I think it was a pretty so popular cool. one. People really liked it. Oh, I really like it. It's so cool. flavorful. So, um, so what a Duskwalker is, if you don't know, because you didn't get that last book, uh, they're they're kind of the planar scion of the Boneyard, and uh, they're really related to Psychopomps. They came from a pact between two Psychopomps that one was basically saying everyone that's dead has a reason to be dead. Like they're, we need to judge them in the boneyard. And the other said, sometimes people are so important on the world that their time has been cut short. 
And so we need to realize that and bring them back to the world. And they came to a compromise, which is really cool. There's a set en- set amount of Duskwalkers on Galarian. A set amount. It never changes. When one dies, another is created within a year. And they're just worthy souls that died too soon. They're always kind of like gray or or blue, but they look like they're just like just like the other versatile heritages. They look like their um, their humanoid form. One interesting thing though is that a dragon can 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 become a duskwalker, mm-hmm. but when they come back, they look like a humanoid, maybe with scales, but they look like a humanoid. And oh man, I mean, just at the beginning, they get. Same with the vampires; they get low light or dark vision, depending on what their uh, previous ancestor or what their other part of their ancestry is. But these are exactly what you would want to play in Carrion Crown. Hmm. Level one feet, Ghost Hunter. <laughs> you, <laughs> if you don't have a magical weapon, your weapon is treated as magical against incorporeal creatures. Ooh. If it is magical, it's treated as if it has a ghost touch property rune. Boom. There's actually a early feat in first edition that does this same thing. Except it except it requires your weapon to be like a plus two or plus three weapon and then ah. it gets ghost touch. Otherwise it's treated as magical. Man, life sense, like you get life sense as a sense. It's only ten feet and it's an imprecise sense, but life sense is one of the most powerful senses. And it can in in this iteration, you can actually detect living and dead with it. Uh, the Duskwalker gets that like intimate knowledge of life and death, and so they can see these things. Um, and then resist ruin, thirteenth level feat. I just love this one. You you get negative energy resistance five, but once per day you can extend that to your to your allies. So you can like you can just kind of. Re- I've never seen something in two e that's like this with just an innate resistance before, but you just get to extend that to someone else. It's really cool. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. I, I love the, the flavor of it. Um, you brought up some, some great points about it, about the limited number and stuff. It's a, it's a very interesting heritage and I can't wait to see it in play when that will be or how it will be. I don't know, but it, it's so badass. This is something that as a GM, I'd probably only ever allow one in a party though, because yeah, it just seems rare. like it's so yeah. rare. With the limited number, like, okay, you can all be T-Flags if you want. Like, that happens. Mm-hmm. But, like, Duskwalkers, if there's, like, 300 walking the earth, the likelihood that two of you are Duskwalkers. Five eh. Duskwalkers. So we can't expect a Weeby Duskwalkers uh, adventure <laughs> yeah, anytime soon. I don't think that's in the in the works unless they're, like, defending Gravecharge or okay. something. That's amazing. Well, speaking about lots of Tieflings, I'm here to talk about Tieflings, guys. Um, if I were in Gen Z, I'd say that I'm a Tiefling stan. I think I'm using that word correctly. I really like them. Um, you lost me. You lost me. You lost yeah. everybody in the room. Because you're the furthest away from Gen Z, Tim. Ah, shit. Got him. Uh, all right. So just like Asimar, they have lineages. Uh, specifically, these are all going to sound familiar to you guys at home. Hellspawn, Devils, Grimspawn, uh, Daemons, Pitbarn, uh, Demons. Basically, you had somebody in your lineage up the family tree who... Um, either made a deal with someone they shouldn't have or plowed somebody they shouldn't have. And now you're the result of that. One of the things I want to call out is that as described in the advanced players guide here, um, their appearance is markedly more narrow 
than their appearance was in first edition. So what they say here, even though they can vary even between siblings, um, basically they, they say they may have horns, they may have a forked tongue, they may have vestigial wings, cloven feet, etc. But remember, if we're, t- if we're thinking about this in a 1E perspective, 1E had a fucking 100-point table that you could roll on to get all sorts of crazy tiefling stuff. So it's certainly more limited, but that makes it a little bit more focused, which I'm fine. And I'm sure you can flavor any way you want to. The big thing about that table in 1E, of course, was that there were some like bonuses you could get. Um, but it's a reduction nonetheless. With tiefling, I think they they did the thing that uh, Paizo likes to do with... Um, with heritages and ancestries that have been traditionally um, quote unquote evil aligned. I know like you hear wizards of the coast getting blasted for this kind of stuff, like, you know, using to have evil races and stuff. Um, Paizo gets around that by saying they may be predisposed towards evil because they literally have some sort of devil or demon who is in their heritage that can, that still has a connection to them, but it's up to the individual to fight that. And also that, you know, the rest of society may have um, prejudices against these people and view them in a likely incorrect way. So, you know, I like that, that shout out that they're not just evil for evil's sake. You know, they, it's up to them to fight against it and be an actual individual. Um, Moving on a little bit to their, to their feats. Um, you know, you know what, guys, nothing really surprising here. Um, each of the variations, the, those, um, the, the lineages. Hel- yep, the lineages, thank you very much, um, have their own associated feet train, a lot like the Azamar, where they can almost kind of become that. But then a lot of the stuff that, that they have is just kind of stuff that you would expect. Um, their wings g- can get very powerful, really exciting. Um, I think in general, objectively, you know, when I was first reading this the first time, um, weaker than a first edition tiefling, but then when you take it into the versatile heritage perspective, the things that you can do with it are so cool. Yeah, I think I thought now that we've talked tiefling and Asimar, I thought that was one of the weakest parts of the versatile heritages, mm-hmm. which really disappointed me, honestly, because I love playing both of those. Uh, honestly, the feats, there are a couple of standouts, but the feats feel very much other side of the same coin. Like yeah. literally both of their 17th level feet, I think is like you get wings and can fly. Yes. Like make mm-hmm. it, make it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't like that. They were so samey and one was just evil and one was good. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I don't see any, anything in here that blows me away or really shocks me. I felt like the feats were the yeah. building blocks of what you already got as a first edition tiefling yes. it's like i already get these three resistances as a first edition tiefling i don't have to like take the feet and pick one and and that kind of stuff that really made a tiefling stand out in first edition mm-hmm. makes it a little more difficult to kind of put it into a list of feats you can say that about a lot of the these versatile entrances though because they like in first edition they're all front loaded mm-hmm. and here mm-hmm. uh i think a lot of people have that as a criticism of two e where it's like I'm growing into my ancestry. That feels a little bit weird. Yeah. Like, why when I level up do I get more of my ancestral power? It's, it's like a strange. puberty thing, you know. I guess Just so. With He's got it. I the think, man's got it figured I out. Think but like, you, you're not literally going through puberty. Like, if you want to play, well, it depends how you RP it. Okay, I didn't know all of our. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me how to play my character. I didn't know Tim. all APs occurred between character age like <laughs> eleven and sixteen. And t- Tim, you're you're not understanding. <laughs> Going from level one to level twenty, you go through twenty puberties. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I will say wow. is like, if you want to play a tiefling like first edition or a, you know any of these 
Ancestry is like a first edition. As a GM, let your players do the Ancestral Paragon thing. Because that allows you to take multiple of these feats and you don't have to go down a line and you can you can take all your resistances like you would like you would have in first edition. That kind of stuff. What, what is the ancestral paragon? Uh, it allows you to take instead of just like the first, fifth, yada yada yada, uh, ancestry advancement, it lets you take uh, an ancestry feat at every level. Oh, okay. Well, folks, I mean we've been talking about what's cool, what's new. But one of the things that this book also does is it introduces additional stuff for classes that were already in second edition. I'm sorry, not classes, ancestries. Um, so Haley and Griffin, I know you guys both came to this recording session with something in mind that you wanted to chat about, something that got updated, added to those uh, ancestries that we know and love. Um, let's kick it to Haley first. Yeah. Okay. So. Here's the thing. My as a GM, one of my favorite things ever is to make potentially a hostile NPC be incredibly pathetic and make the PCs feel bad for it. Um you all have played with me and you all have experienced this. So Yeah, that's like your your bread and butter. <laughs> I think it's the funniest thing ever. Um I had a really pathetic mummy, but um anyways, Gnome has been added uh has added an ancestry feat called Empathetic Plea. It is a feat at level one. Um basically if you're attacked by a creature that you haven't acted hostile before, uh, you can make this reaction, which is the way you cringe or use puppy dog eyes um, ma- <laughs> makes them basically worse at hitting you. It is the funniest thing to me that someone could be so, so like cringy and sad or puppy dog and cute that like an attacker literally wants to miss it. That is so <laughs> funny to me. This, yeah. I, I wish Catfolk had this too because this completely reminds me of Puss in Boots when he does the yes! like like yes. the big, oh, the cat, the big eyes. cat eyes. I honestly I wish this was a more generic feat because I would take this. <laughs> it's really funny. I really like it. Griff, what you got? Uh I, I also have a gnome thing and then I just want to talk something halflings get. But gnomes, level nine feet. If you want to play a rogue, you might want to consider a gnome. They get life leap. You must be the requirement is you must be adjacent to a living creature. It's one action. You phase through a space that a living creature occupies in a flash, spontaneously appearing on the other side of it in a vibrant display of display of colorful light. You move from your current location to another location that's still adjacent to the same living creature, but on the opposite side or corner of the creature's space. This is Flank City, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and it's actually like you can only go up to your movement, but imagine this against a huge creature just to get around it. That's so cool. That's great. Uh, great for rogues. Great for just characters that care about flanks. The other thing I wanted to mention is a new heritage. So they brought in a new heritage for halflings, the jinxed halfling. And you always get that halfling luck that was described in the, um, in the core rule book. This is the opposite of that. These halflings are not born lucky, but they get an ability called Jinx, which once per day, you can curse another creature to be clumsy. And uh, you can't ever take halfling luck with, with this uh, heritage, but it's, again, we have Jinx eaters, we have Jinx halflings. There's a lot of luck and, and black cat. And mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of luck, bad luck stuff in this book. I really love the flavor of it. Yeah, it's sweet. Um, oh, then I, I did promise to yep. talk about this one for Ikmer. It's a human level 13 feet called Bounce Back. 
you just once per day can lose the dying condition. Forget about it. All of it? Damn. You recover from your death experiences with astounding resilience. Don't increase the value of your wounded condition due to losing... Oh, sorry. You don't increase the wounded condition. So combined oh, with the orc ferocity for Ikmer allows you to just kind of not increase your wounded, not go down to dying. Really cool stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. He gets knocked down, but he doesn't stay down. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to keep him down. Folks, we talked a lot about ancestries. Oh, yeah. But the biggest pull for me for this book was new freaking classes. Woo! And there are four of them. Guys, th- I, I, I love them. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about the first one. First out of the gate, Investigator. So can I recreate Matumbe in second edition? No, because we don't have an Inquisitor yet. However, I can get the Investigator half of him here. And folks, this class fucking rocks. Sorry, sorry to spill the beans here, but it fucking rocks. So in first edition, basically your investigator was a little bit of a mismatch of a rogue and an alchemist. And it's cool. I, I, I think it works. But I think the folks at Paizo looked at the investigator class for second edition and really thought, how can we make this uniquely its own flavor and, and, and just work? And it does. So basically the the um the, the the guiding light behind this class it says you seek to uncover the truth doggedly pursuing leads to reveal the plots of devious villains discover ancient secrets unravel other mysteries um you have an analytical mind to quickly formulate solutions to complicated puzzles um your own senses identify even the most obscure clues and then i put this in bold right now wielding knowledge as a weapon you study the creatures and dangers you encounter to exploit their weaknesses guys the folks at Paizo really went all out on this actual investigation and wielding knowledge as a class. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is their their emphasis on, on investigation. So right off the bat on level one, you get this ability, pursue a lead. Every single Paizo AP or module, there's some sort of mystery you need to uncover. And it is built into this class that you are pursuing the answer to this mystery. And to do this, you're finding clues that you study and using pursue a lead, you gain bonuses when you find a clue to the mystery to unravel more things about that mystery. You get a a, a cool reaction called clue in where if somebody else is in your party um, that is trying to unravel the same mystery you are and making a skill check to find out more about it, you can clue in and give them a bonus to their role. It's great. They're, each investigator has its own methodology to, so that you can flavor your investigator your own way and you do get some certain bonu- uh, bonuses from each one. There's an alchemical one, which feels a lot like the extract part of one investigator. There's empiricist. You guys all know about that from the show. You have a forensic investigator and interrogator. It's, it's cool. So. There are some interesting feats that go along with the investigation half of this class that I'd like to touch on. Um, at level one, you get something called you can get something called that's odd. Basically, whenever you enter a room or a new area, the GM has to tell you one thing that's off. So the example they give in the in the rule book is that if you go into a room where there's a giant blood stain in the middle of the floor, clearly something was killed here. That's not. I mean, that's weird. It's not right, but it's not suspicious. What might be suspicious is like a trail of bloody footprints going out the door or um, like a safe that was broken into on that is not the actual murder that took place. 
And that's just something the GM has to tell you. At level two, you can pick up something called red herring, where if you're looking at a certain clue that you thought was relevant, the GM just has to tell you if it's inconsequential. That's when I was reading this class, I felt it's a lot like it's a lot like talking to God, right? Mm. You're, you're talking to the GM yep. has to do a lot of things for this class. I, yeah. It's really cool. It's so unique. I've never heard of something like this. I love it so much because it, it just encourages collaboration with your GM. Yes. And a lot of times as a GM, you're putting things out there and you're like, I really hope that the PCs pick up on this clue. And then now you're just be like, oh, I have an investigator. No problem. <laughs> yep. Like forget about whatever extraneous detail that I put there for flavor's sake that the PCs are obsessed about. I can be like, guys, it's a, it's a red herring. It's fine. Yep. Like it's so much power and collaboration with the GM. It's awesome. I, I think just having this class can like streamline so many sessions that oh, devolve yeah. into bullshit. <laughs> um, so, so next, uh, the one, I, the other one I want to talk about before I move on to how this uh, a character that has the investigator class would operate in combat is something called Who Done It. Basically, it's as simple as you ask the GM two questions, and they have to answer yes, no, or inconsequential. That's it. Sweet. It's awesome. Um, So I really, really do like the investigation half of this, but I did promise you guys that I was going to talk about the combat and it's all built around something called devise a set, a stratagem that you get at level one. And I wrote in big, bold text here, fucking that's how you design an int fighter or somebody that fights with intelligence. Mm -hmm. Basically, you are so intelligent. You're watching the the battle, seeing how things fold out. You're looking at your opponent, and you roll a d20 to attack. But instead of using your strength or dex as a modifier, you use your intelligence. And it's not actually and it's not actually an attack. It's just to see what you would get because then you decide whether or not you use that d20 roll plus your intelligence to attack or do something else. So, for example, if I rolled a natural 20, of course I want to attack with that. If I rolled a one. Maybe I'll spend my second and third action in my turn doing something else, like rolling a knowledge check. Um, wow. It's great. It's so interesting. Very powerful. Yeah. Um, that is how you use intelligence as a weapon. It's really cool. Well, and it's really thematic for the strategy. Yes. You're devising. It's like the, this strategy is going to work with the 20. Like, I know, uh, this strategy is yeah. going to work. Or this strategy is going to fail. I got to think of something else. Got to pull back. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I absolutely love it. It continues to build with a bunch of different feats, too. There's something called known weakness, where if you use that stratagem, you get a free immediate knowledge check um, and you get a plus one to hit. And then you share that with your allies, because basically you're just like shout out what you know about them. Um, Shared stratagem. You can make it flat foot. You can make your uh, enemy flat footed strategic assessment. If you crit, the GM answers a question like what? Is this thing immune to? Like a what knowledge it look? check? That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's great. Um, and the, so, that's, so that's kind of how an investigator would work in combat. I I just had to highlight before I got to my final thoughts on the class. Most Matumbe feat ever is one called Reason Rapidly. It's only one action in combat. Now, remember that an intel or I'm sorry, a knowledge check in combat is an action. So as an action in combat, you can do five knowledge checks. Ooh. That's absurd. <laughs> I think it's oh hilarious that that exists. <laughs> that is the most Matumbe feat ever. <laughs> yep. 
Of course, you have to have like a lot of different creatures out or, there. Or maybe it's like something with class levels. So you need to do a society and mm-hmm. a nature or something like uh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, I, I think my final thoughts on the class is that it took this hybrid class that works just fine in one E and built it into something that stands on its own. It's well thought out, clearly well thought out, um, and developed very strongly. Oh, God. Burped a little bit there. <laughs> very strong. Yeah. I, I'm so passionate about the investigator. <laughs> I feel that the investigator would fit right at home in like a social campaign or a, ca- or a campaign with a conspiracy. I know the um, Edge Watch campaign, which was just released with the Gen Con, uh, book one was released with the Gen Con releases. Um, I feel like this would fit right at home. That is supposed to be built around a conspiracy. I don't think you could do that AP without an <laughs> investigator. <laughs> it's yeah. built I, think that, that, I mean, that's why they were released at the same time. It's perfect, perfect for it. Perfect. Um, it does not have the inspiration pool that it did in one E, but it doesn't need it because stratagem I think is executed so well. I think it's a bang up class. Uh, the iconic is really, is really cool too. I, I really enjoyed reading through this one and I can't wait to play one sometime in the future. Hold that thought about the pool because I think like a lot of the advanced classes in mm. first edition use the arcane pool or they use Oh, I'll tell the, you about how we pool. changed the pool. <laughs> or the pool. <laughs> we got pool. out of the pool. So I do want to talk about that later, or you could talk about it, but yeah. yeah. All right, folks, I think that's enough on the investigator. You guys clearly know how I feel about that one, and the answer <laughs> is strongly. Um, the next one up, we're going to kick it to Chris to describe to us a little bit about the Oracle. Yeah, so I, I am not actually as gung-ho about the Oracle, I think, as Steve is the investigator. I still feel a little uneasy about it. Okay. So for some for, for, for some perspective, in 1E, you had casters that could cast spells up to a certain level. Um, Oracle was a ninth-level spontaneous caster. Ooh. You had something like the Bard, which was a sixth-level caster, so you differentiated that. In 2E, every spellcasting class gets spells up to, like, the tenth-level spells. So the only way to really differentiate them is, like, the number of spell slots they have. And in 2e, the Oracle has the same number of spell slots available as the Bard does, which at the end of, you know, you get up to high levels, you've got, like, you max out at, like, three spell slots, essentially. Um, Something like the Sorcerer, who was on par in 1e with um, the caster level of of an Oracle, has an additional, like, an extra spell slot per level. So it almost feels like... They took the spell casting of an oracle and brought it over to like the the bard level almost. Um, just some basics about the class. Um, you start out trained in fortitude, trained in reflex. You're expert in will. An interesting thing on the the save progression is that the first increase that you get is at seventh level. You get master in will, um, which is different than some of the others. You get expert at earlier levels. Oh yeah. Um, so just if you're not familiar with the oracle, just a summary. Um, it is uh, you. You have a conduit to divine power that's different. It's outside the boundaries of what you normally would with a, like a normal deity. Um, you you just draw from divine power, and that comes with a curse. The curse is a big part of the oracle build. Um, so you have a you have a certain mystery, and your curse is def- is based off of that. There's different levels of curses. There's a a minor, a moderate, and a major. Eventually, there's an extreme, and really, you can only operate in minor or or moderate. Um, if you go to major at early levels, you you lose a lot of your spellcasting abilities because of how hard the consequences are on you. Um, and I was looking at a lot of these a lot of these mysteries, and for some of them, the curse is the curse is just you get some benefits from your mystery for sure, but the curse is pretty heavy in some. The one I'm thinking of most is Cosmos, which 
you get a, an amazing benefit of damage resistance up to like half your level. Like I think actually like a, a static number plus half your level. Um, but you're in feet like your your curse gives you enfeebled conditions scaling based on how how major your curse is. Mm. Um, so the way your curse advances is you have focus um, spells like you would other spell casting classes. Um, and every time you cast one of these, they're called revelation spells, but it, it doesn't focus spell. Whenever you cast one of them, your curse level increases. Um, you can spend stuff. You can spend uh, spend time to mitigate um, your curse level and take it back down to minor um, after you've been in a combat or something. But the big thing in two E is that there's no way to actually mitigate your curse. In one E, maybe you know if you have like a reduced land speed, maybe you take another feat to speed it. Well, up. in one E, the curses mitigated themselves eventually. I was about yeah. to say. As you leveled up, you oh my land speeds decreased, and now I can I, I forget what it was, but you ended up like. Yeah. Getting well, you, fly or something. Yeah. You got to you got to pick your curses, and most people just pick pretty in, inconsequential curses. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think they maybe maybe you know to your point maybe a little too hard, but I think they actually wanted to make the curses matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm thinking of the one, and it might have been the one Emily picked for for Lyra that was just like strange things happen around you. Cool, <laughs> real difficult. Yeah, strange things. So I'm not I'm not going to go crazy into the mysteries. I'm just going to bring up the ones that I thought were um, good for certain things. Um, You know, if you're planning on getting into melee, there is a battle mystery um, that might be good. But overall, I think Oracle is a little bit of a trap for someone who's trying to get into melee because they never get expert um, proficiency in any attacks until 11th level, which is pretty far for that to come online. pretty down the pipe. Yeah. Um, So... The one I thought for like a typical blaster class was the flames mystery, which there's a lot of inter- you have an aura of flames. Eventually, you can if someone's in this aura and you hit hit them with a fire spell, you can do some persistent fire damage, which is interesting. Um, but you've got some visibility limitations with that. That's pretty rough that you need to consider. You really have to consider your curse and your mystery to play your character. Um, Life mystery is another notable one. Um, there's some pretty hardcore healing stuff you can do as a life. Um, uh, mystery oracle um, as your curse progresses you get some things where you can't be healed with magical effects which isn't as bad in Tui because you have a lot of people running around with battle medicine healing you via just like just treating wounds non-magically there is a lore mystery that's interesting the lore mystery um, the big benefit of that is it bumps up your spell slots to the level of what a sorcerer is which essentially gives you that sorcerer level spell casting so everyone can always use an extra um, an extra spell per level oh, yeah. on all their levels. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's big. There's there's some feats in there. When I when we were talking about feats, um, you can pick up some based on your mystery. You can pick up some cleric, um, some divine spells, um, depending on the domain that's associated with your mystery as a feat. That's pretty cool. There's one there's one high level feat I have to talk about because oh it's just God, ridiculous. So I talked to you guys insane. about this. Um, this is called the Blaze of Revelation. It's a feat at 18th level. So you start your Blaze of Revelation, and for a minute, you can cast as many Revelation spells as you want without running out of focus pool points, without escalating your curse at all. For a minute, you're just slinging away these really high-power spells. Once that minute is over, you have to make a DC 40 fortitude save. (laughs) What? I'm not even going to talk about the crit succeed condition, because good luck rolling a 50, (laughs) even at 18th level, a 50 fortitude save. Not going to happen. So if you succeed on this crazy fortitude save, you're drained two still automatically. Like there's there's a downside. You fail, you're drained four. If you critically fail this DC 40, 40 fortitude save, you die. No dying conditions. <laughs> you are dead. 
So See, I, think, I think we we did the math. We on did this. the math. We're like, okay, what would what would it take to crit fail with this class? You know, taking into consideration all the proficiencies, and it was still like a fifteen percent chance to right just about there to, die, to just like, immediately just die. Dead. Be the stakes up. That's that's the avatar state, baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So final but, thoughts. I mean, that could be a benefit, right? Because you get to build a new character. You get to build oh, a new yeah, character yeah, that yeah. is not an yeah. I'm not yeah. cursed anymore. No. <laughs> so final thoughts. I'm still a little iffy on this. Um, you know, casting divine spells um, is interesting, but like there's options out there like a divine bloodline sorcerer and other stuff that you might want to consider when you're thinking about Oracle because the curse is really, there's a lot of rough curses in this. I, I really wonder if this is going to take the same route as the alchemist in uh, in second edition where I feel like a lot of people felt that the alchemist because they had these different routes they could go down, they never got to like, and they were full full casters, if you will. They never got to like the expert or or master proficiencies like the other. If you were to do a full spellcaster, a full marshal, whereas in first edition, like Oracle and Alchemist, whatever route you go down, you could you could definitely hang out with the big boys in whatever you decided to specialize in. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the Oracle. Like um, the impressions here is that it's going to be kind of weak with the proficiencies because it can do it can do the spell casting, but you can also go like sort of wade into melee combat and do some other. I don't know. I wonder just because we've been talking a lot about it, if it's going to go the same way as the alchemist. It feels way. like how they're trying to approach like three quarters BAB yeah. characters, mm-hmm. like six level casters. So I'm getting it's like, that. You know, you, you kind of get that feeling with the proficiency scaling. With it's that. a murky spot, I yeah. think, yeah. for because you want to feel powerful, you know. Obviously. Yeah. I agree with everything you guys are saying. Um, what I would like just to add on there personally um, is that how this class will actually take off in practice still remains to be seen. But to me, I'm getting a little bit of a witch warper vibe from Starfinder where is this as powerful as some of the other quote unquote casters? Maybe not, but goddamn that flavor. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Flavor is phenomenal. People will play it for the flavor alone. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add there, Chris, or should we keep moving along? Just keep moving. Wonderful. So the next new class that we're going to be talking about is Griffin here with Swashbuckler. Guys, Swashbuckler is no longer the one-level dip class it was in first edition. <laughs> this this actually floored me because I came into Swashbuckler expecting it to be very samey to the first edition Swashbuckler. It is so cool. So first off, key ability score dexterity. You got 10 HP per level. The class works off of panache, but panache is no longer a pool. It's a state of mind. <laughs> it's a way of being. So you can enter panache by doing actions that require flair. So some of these are things that your GM, just like in first edition, could say, oh, that was cool as fuck. You're in the panache state. But there's two very solid options. One is to use acrobatics to tumble through. And the other is an option that's determined by your swashbuckler style. So before I talk about the styles, I want to talk about what Panache gives you. So it's a state you enter and you don't have to leave until you decide. It, it, unlike a pool, mm-hmm. let my close. You you just decide when you're done. I'm into Panache. that. Yeah. Uh, so Panache gives you scaling bonuses to speed, to checks to tumble through, or to whatever your style option is. To It gives you scaling precision damage and scaling finisher damage. And by finisher damage, I mean there's these things called finishers, guys. They, just like you said, flavor for the Oracle, these are so flavorful. You just like, in a sweep of grace, connect in this finisher, 
You pump all of your panache into the enemy, much like a rogue would do with sneak attack, and you do this extra precision damage, dice of it, d6s of it. So finishers end the panache, but they have several other effects too, and and those kind of change, you can completely customize your finishers with the feats in the swashbuckler um, tree. And so we'll get to that, but I want to talk about the styles. So the styles kind of like your different oracle curses. Um, you have Battle Dancer, which uses performance to fascinate. So each, this is this is the coolest thing about uh, Swashbuckler as a martial combatant. Each style focuses on a way to debuff the enemy. And so it is baked in that you're using the 2E system to its fullest, which is that you're debuffing as one of your actions. That's what everybody should be doing as they're playing 2E mm. coming from first edition. So Battle Dancer uses performance to fascinate. Braggart uses intimidate to demoralize. Fencer uses deception to faint. Athlete uses athletics to maneuver. And Wit uses diplomacy to do a custom thing created <laughs> for for everybody, but they get this feat. It's called Bon Mo, and it's a witty remark. So they make a witty remark at the enemy and uh, using diplomacy. And what that does is actually a unique, different debuff. And I really like it. So um, so much like demoralizes against the will DC of an enemy, but on a crit success, the target's distracted and takes a minus three status penalty to perception and will saves for one minute. They can end the effect Ooh. early if they can retort to your Bon Mo. Oh. Um, mm. Which can either be a single action that has a concentrate trait or an appropriate skill action to kind of frame up their retort. So they basically, they have to use a charisma-based skill back at you. Uh, may not at a, go at well. A, at a certain DC, yeah. Uh, a, a success is all of that, but just minus two instead of minus three. Uh, failure. Um, success is still a minus two? Is success is still a minus That's two, but a, dope. Uh, a failure is nothing but a critical failure. Your quip is atrocious. You take the same penalty an enemy would take had you succeeded. This ends after a minute or after you issue another Bon Mo. So this I could see paired with the witch so well because you're you're dumping the enemy's will saves that minus three is minus three is huge so these are the ways that you enter panache uh it's different for every style but then you can also all um swashbucklers are start trained in acrobatics so you could also use tumble through um at level three, you get opportune repost. So in first edition, you had your parry repost. You get your repost back. It's uh, a foe within your reach critically fails a strike. So if they critically fail against you, you get to either hit them back or attempt a disarm maneuver, which is 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 unique because usually, like in first edition, repost was just I'm going to roll off against you and I'm wasting my panache pool. Here, it's just anytime someone crit fails you get to do it, mm -hmm. which is very cool. Yeah. Um, talking through what uh, what a swashbuckler's feats kind of look like, there are feats for several different uh, aspects of a swashbuckler. So I talked about finishers. There's a whole line of finisher feats, which lets you change the way the finisher works. So maybe your finisher, uh, your finisher is an attack, so maybe you miss. Well, there's a feat that mitigates that. It says, oh, well, if you miss, you still deal the precision damage, mm -hmm. even if you miss. Or maybe you want your panache still. Well, if you kill him with your finisher, guess what? You're still in the panache state. Or oh, I just want to inflict bleed. That's there, too. There are so many options for your finisher. It's bonkers. 
Beyond that, there are feet trees for each of the different styles. So things that make you better at intimidating or let you intimidate differently. One of my favorites is for the battle dancer. It makes uh, fascinate a thing that you should actually be able to do in combat. Normally fascinate in combat requires a critical success. With this feat, it is only a success. You can fascinate people in combat, which is crazy good. There's one thing that kind of bothered me about the Swashbuckler in first edition is that it didn't have a lot of versatility outside of like wacky archetypes to do things that weren't one hand free, one hand with a slashing piercing weapon. Yep. And that was it. Here, you can do ranged with a first level feat. You can be a ranged swashbuckler with a first level feat. You can throw shit. No problem. There are feats to support that later on. You can be an unarmed swashbuckler if you want. Cool. Feats to support that. You can dual wield as a swashbuckler. Feats to support that. You can use a buckler. You can, there's, a, there's a buckler dance feat that makes you not have to raise your shield anymore. There's a feat for that. There are, it's so much more versatile than first edition. And I think that makes it feel much less like a flashy fighter and much more like its own thing. I'm so excited to play Ray Mysterio, the like gymnast acrobatic swashbuckler <laughs> that jumps on the corner of the ring and dives onto his opponents. Well, Sign I think I up. think if you noticed, most of the most of the styles are focus on a you have your tumble through, which yeah. is dexterity or key skill, and then you have a skill that's a charisma one. But for the the gymnast, you can I mean, you could be a strength. You could dump charisma if you wanted. There's mm -hmm. feats to support that. You could just be a strength-based, strength and dex swashbuckler killing stuff. Yeah, which is really cool. Um, I, the feel I got from this, having read the other core classes in Tui, is that it it kind of a lot of the feats that aren't specific to a style are borrowed. So you have attack of opportunity, you have nimble dodge, you have things from the uh, the fighter, the rogue, the bard. You have uh, you have stances now, which I know monk, stances yeah. are kind of expanded, but they were in the core rulebook mainly a monk thing. You have mm -hmm. stances you can enter as a swashbuckler. So I am I am very impressed by this. I think this is this is a completely new marshal in my opinion, and um, the fact that it's become so versatile compared to what a swashbuckler used to be, is really impressive. Really sounds like the jack of all blades, if you will. Jack of all blades. Nice. That's a cue to switch it up a little bit. Um, next up, we have the witch. And to present the witch to all of you lovely people listening at home, we have our lovely Tim. Hello. I'm back uh, from three seconds ago to talk about the witch. And... Um, I have to say, coming into this class, I wasn't stoked. It was just that, like, it was like, okay, I feel like people are not going to, I'm not going to pick on the witch, so I'm going to, like, pick it. I was interested in the oracle. Chris is picking the oracle. So, I went into this with my one-y mindset, my one-y brain that was thinking, in first edition, you can build a witch and... When it comes down to the most powerful options, your witch will be like everybody else's witch. It, in my opinion, this is this is maybe controversial. I don't know, uh, but like, you pick up your evil eye and your uh, misfortune, and you do the debuffing. You get up to sleep, and then you you give your 
GM a bad time and it's not I mean maybe I'm biased because uh. I had two witches in my previous uh, I feel like you're taking pre-personal shots at me Tim I will say Steve uh, your witch in our Return of the Rune Lords campaign has made a notable effort at mixing it up and doing something different Thank which you. I appreciate it but I know that I'm not the only one who thinks this way the forums have spoken and what I've read is that people are 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 thinking that one witches are a little bit um funneled into one role i think the 2e witch has greatly expanded in the amount of roles it can do and kept the same flavor uh and even expanded on some of the things that were just kind of side things that they did in first edition um so to to talk first about the side thing because i know we're gonna uh, dabble on this a little bit later but the witch can really dive into the familiar aspect of their character um Witches and uh, alchemists had a, a huge familiar focus in the core rulebook. Witches have uh, a greatly expanded role. They get innately with their character. They get extra abilities when they level up. Um, I think at first level, they get like an extra familiar ability. And then at 6 and 12 and so on. Um, and you can use these to qualify for some extra special familiars. Um, but... Uh, you know, I imagine there's going to be a lot of these added on. You can also make your own custom familiar. So your familiar should be something that feels entirely unique to your own character because it has, you know, these different uh, characteristics or maybe it gives you these different powers to sort of uh, maybe enhance your spellcasting, maybe give you more um, alchemist things to do as the witch. Um, as a side note, the witch can pick the cauldron uh, uh, feats to go down in which they will uh, get sort of almost like a multi-class into alchemist innately, except you're using your cauldron. So you get all these different formulas and stuff, but uh, you can go down that route with the familiar as well. Uh, so the familiar gets a huge amount of flexibility. And if you want to focus on that, I think role play wise, it's going to be an incredible opportunity because um, if you don't know already, the patron is the person that gives you your powers and they're speaking to you through your familiar. And so I think um, as a GM, you have a lot of ways to to put in this mystery, much like the Oracle mysteries of where you get your power and uh, how it manifests in your character. Um, so I love that. That was already, again, that was already baked into the 1E Witch. I think they just expanded it in 2E, made it awesome. Um, of course you get all the spells that you would as a wizard, um, you're doing, uh, you're adding spells to your familiar, much like you add spells to your book. You can learn a spell from other wizards. You're no longer limited to like talking oh God, to another witch. To witch. witch. Yeah, uh, no witch to witch. You can. You can't just make your familiars hang out anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, let me find another witch to talk to. Better burn this scroll and make my familiar eat it. Oh, oh my God. So in first edition, you had a percent chance to fail if you uh, if you use up your scroll to learn a spell, that's gone. Um, yeah, it sucked. Good riddance. <laughs> uh, so this is one of the reasons why I think like the witch is just a lot more powerful and a lot more versatile than it was in first edition. Maybe not powerful because there was a lot of broken shit that the witch could do in first edition, but uh, certainly uh, certainly better. You I mean, know, speaking of versatility, what uh, what casting tradition does the witch come from? Great point, Griffin. Uh, you can pick any uh, casting tradition you want, except for divine. I believe. No, they're they're. Is all there a divine one? Now. Oh shit! Yeah, 
I made a mistake then. Someone didn't do their homework. Oh, man. All right, the, Tim. The, the playtest didn't Kidding. have divine. But is gonna, that what I was thinking yeah, of? Yeah, We're yeah, going to have right. to ask you to leave the table. The council is spoken. <laughs> You're <laughs> off the panel. Please join me in my podcast, the Comfortable Laughter Podcast. <laughs> the Divine the Witch, Witch Podcast. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so you can pick up at first level a different theme, and that'll give you access to uh, the appropriate, um, uh, I guess, uh, spell list that you want to be casting from. Well, most of them are occult, uh, but you do have t- uh, a couple nature options. A re- a, there we go, a divine option <laughs> and an arcane option. Um, so yeah, you can, much like the sorcerer, pick from anything. The, the big thing to consider when you're picking up your first level witch is the theme that you are choosing is going to have, of course, some flavor implications. Like if you're picking fate, you're going to be dealing with uh, changing people's roles and sort of like influencing the outcomes of uh, certain combats or or turns. But um, that comes with a hex. So if you pick the fate hex, you get the nudge. Sorry, if you pick the fate theme, you get the nudge fate hex which is a cantrip. It, it acts very similarly to the cantrips that the bard has, where you basically, as an action, you turn it on, and every turn you can continue to um, sustain the spell and have that as an ongoing effect, or you can decide to end it and switch to something else. Um, so it's important to think about your action economy when you're doing this. Nudge Fate, you can select a person, and that person, whenever they roll something that misses by exactly one, and you know it does, you can boop, bump it up, plus one, your hex sends, and you nudge them into a success. That um, is okay. clever. That's so funny. Yeah. A little, little metagaming, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you'd have to be in the know about what they're Do you have are. to be in the know, or can you just be like, I think they're pretty close, nudge, fade, and then it, you know, you fail if you fail. Uh, the impression was that, like, it was like, if it would help. So, you wouldn't want to waste it if right. if you did that. So I think the GM would have to let you know if you were going to use it that it wasn't going to help at all. Oh, so maybe yeah. maybe it's a little bit more like the uh, investigator then, mm-hmm. where it's like the GM would say, "Hey, if you want to use Nudge Fate, you can use Nudge Fate here." Yeah, that that could be a way to do it if you want to give away like the AC or something, um, for sure. Who wants to do that? Yeah, so it's like a it's like a little retroactive uh, thing you can do, and and then your hex is over. And this is a cantrip hex; you you can cast as much as you want. Um, later on, the, uh, the, the witch can pick some feats to go down. Um, some of those, like I mentioned, are the cauldron feats, some enhance your familiar, um, but others are sort of the fallbacks, which are the basic lessons, the greater lessons and the major lessons. Um, these are giving you access to better and stronger hexes. Oh, and they also grant you extra spells. Um, the themes also do this. But um, you're able to get access to some select spells that are maybe not on your spell list if you chose uh, a spell list like religion and you want to get something like True Strike, you know, that that may be uh, oh, that's in your so wheelhouse. cool. You can pick stuff up off of your spell list. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's mm. pretty powerful, actually. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and like Mage Armor is one or Lesson of Protection can get you access to the spell Mage Armor, which you can cast... And have that active all day, and you're happy. But yeah, the 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 highlights here I wanted to say is um, of the themes. There's the hex evil eye. It's a cantrip. A lot of people love this hex from first edition. Um, it's similar. It applies the frightened one condition, and it scales up as you go up in level. 
and okay. Frightened yeah. One is reducing all of your DC, so you're reducing their AC, you're reducing their will DC, you're reducing their perception DC, all DCs. Hope your GM's um, using Hero Lab. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's you, a lot of got, condition you management. Bond mode and then, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. That's 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 a good point. Um, since we're talking about it, like I know debuffs are more powerful in second edition. That's mm-hmm. what they say. So yeah, that's what we're talking about. The, the combination here is going to be super strong. Um, you can uh, pick up the lesson of dreams as a basic lesson and start to delve into picking up focus spells as your hexes. Uh, it costs a focus point, but if you, every time you pick up like greater lesson or major lesson, you get to expand your focus pool up to three. And then um, you're casting your hex. It costs a point, but you're going to be uh, continuing to sustain it on every turn if you want the effects to continue. And so I can see how your action economy would be eaten up just by sustaining all these hexes. But at the same time, you can uh, you can do more hexes at a time than you could theoretically in first edition. Um, if you want to take the feet to cackle, you can make a sustain a spell a free action, and so you can just uh, free up that entirely. Granted, it will take another uh, another focus point, I believe. To cackle a focus to, point. To cackle, I I had to double check on that, but um, I think it might be an additional focus spell. So you'd have to spend a point. Um, there's a lot more support abilities that the witch can go down. If you don't want to debuff, uh, you can take things like life boost to give people fast healing, um, at double your spell level that you can cast for four rounds. Um, with the lesson of life that that comes with, you can have spirit link, which, uh, just allows you to heal someone every single time. if they're down on hit points, higher level, the lesson of shadow, number one flavor, uh, hex for me you can make their shadow attack them and so they can like like you know they can your ba- the shadow can come up and like stab you or like bite you or whatever the hell you want to do for flavor uh and it'll do um some nasty damage it's a spell attack roll does a d10 plus the spell casting mod and you can typically pick these up by six level um the major lessons are of course bonkers you get them at level 10 ish um and uh curse of death if they fail a will save they have a condition which reduces every every turn so at first you take some negative damage you become fatigued and then you continue along this track until on round four they're dead it's just wow yeah it's it's like it's like perishing for pokemon (laughs) yeah remove the condition please yeah so if they fail at first we'll say they're fucked so (laughs) so you cast this on somebody and then everyone just runs away (laughs) booking it just just delay the combat just last four rounds i think i got it boys (laughs) so yeah that's really cool uh the lesson of renewal is more of a support one um this will reduce the doomed and drain condition by one um, if you cast it with your focus point and then, um, they get a new saving throw against any affliction they have. As long as the, uh, duration is less than one day, um, you can be a huge support, witch uh, with this focus spell where you're like, again, afflictions are poisons, diseases, curses, like anything. You can just give them another saving throw, which I think That's is pretty strong. Sweet. That's yeah. really cool. And uh, and yeah, so that that's all I have to say about the witch. Uh, I know it's a lot, but I'm I'm really excited for this class. I I went from zero to 100 percent when I was reading through it. 
Yeah, we can tell. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> excited. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 dude. I, this is the most excited I've ever seen Tim. I've known Tim for like, uh, I don't know, like six or seven years now. I've never seen him this excited. Tim, you're very excited about this class. I am too. You know, I'm playing a witch right now and I love it and I can't wait to see how one acts in second edition. However, I do know there's a lot with uh, first and second edition with the witch class that does that deals with the familiar and the familiar is an inherent part of the class and they've expanded familiars a little bit in second edition with this book. So Haley, do you want to talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I love familiars in general. Like I always like classes that play like that have familiars and I like uh, I like the idea of getting familiars in a lot of different things into it, but I do want to just talk about some of the more unusual new familiars. Um, so, you know, you have some of your traditional ape, bat, boar, I mean, not traditional, but, you know, the little bit odd, but kind of common, scorpion, mm-hmm. etc. But you also have ability to have an uh, arboreal sapling, which is a walking tree. That's amazing to me. Dope. Um, <laughs> just love that. And throw rock is their like special move. So that's also amazing. <laughs> I'm three at a rock. Yeah, they 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 uh pick up a rock or uh retrieve a stowed rock and then throw it. Um, that's so hilarious to me. Um, in addition, there's also riding drakes. So if you ever wanted a flightless uh you know flightless drake for a companion, you have that ability now. And then this is one of my favorites: shark. The right. Shark, shark. Uh, All right. Classic. I would absolutely love to be in a campaign where you can uh, have a shark familiar and ride it. That would be fantastic and just an absolutely ridiculously amazing thing. In addition, it does have the traditional shark thing where it can smell blood for a mile away. So that's amazing. Okay. Um, so then those are the regular familiars. Now, there's three new specific familiars that were put in. Um, I know Tim and I have already talked about one of them, but there's this fairy dragon, which in general, the breath weapon on this is a euphoric gas and a 10 foot cone, which is hilarious to me. I know a thing or two about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, people become stupefied in it. So that's interesting. Um, The next one, right, is Imp. And this is the one Tim and I have talked about a little bit. I love this one. Yeah. Um, so he, he likes this one. It is, uh, an, an, an imp. I don't know if you wanted to say anything. Oh yeah. Specifically. Well, the, I mean, the imp can, uh, you can make like a demonic pact with someone. And, um, so like basically they get, I forget, yeah, I, I forget what the benefit is to be honest, but like you get, uh, maybe you get, it's, so I, I have it in front of me. Okay. The, the imp offers a non fiend within 15 feet, a bargain, a granting of a boon of good luck. If the creature... Um, accepts a bargain or a granting of boon of good luck, etc. Oh, the boon yeah. lasts for one hour once accepted. The cre- if the creature dies while the boon is in place, its soul travels to hell where it's bound for eternity and unable to be raised or resurrected except by wish or similar magic. But well, the boon is really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like once per- during that hour, the creature can roll an attack roll or saving throw twice and use a higher result. So it's like you can give them. You know that fortune. Um, you can give them fortune, basically, and like you, you better be sure that you don't die within an hour, <laughs> which is amazing. I think that's super cool. And then the very last one, which is one I also felt like Tim might appreciate, is called Spell Slime. Mm-hmm. It is um an ooze that congeals from the essence of leftover spells, which Great. is amazing. I used to be a fireball. <laughs> <laughs> So um, you can only get this, though, if you can cast uh, spells using spell slots. But basically, it's got scent, ooze defenses, and slime rejuvenation. So you just basically have a little ooze. It's like a, it's like a, a, the flavor is that it can smell magic, too. Yes. So it's like, 
its sensibility is like my sibling. What's that? I I, I smell I, some evocation magic over there. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I love familiars in general, and I like animal companions, etc. So it was really nice to see these like kind of funky ones show up. True. <laughs> yeah. So and a lot I'm, of these, and I'm sure we'll never see you play one with one of those. <laughs> a lot no, of these do. Never. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> A lot of these do have like a big uh, prerequisite that you have to have a certain amount of abilities. Yeah. The the witch unlocks that earlier by getting the bonus abilities. So that, that's kind of what I was hinting at earlier. Dope. Yeah. Well, also included in this book are some expanded uh, rules and extra bonus stuff for the classes that appear in the core rule book. Folks, we're not going to touch on that today because we have a limited amount of time. And I just want to say Zen Archer Monk, one feet, one feet, <laughs> Zen, Ar- Zen Archer Monk, it's here. Tune it's into here. my... Um, comfortable laughter podcast for those classes <laughs> yep uh, i i got nothing witty here uh, <laughs> but also they included in this book 42 archetypes and can say 42. can i say at the top here paizo my god the art for all 42 Oh yeah. oh, yeah. It's so good. Very good. You look, I couldn't believe there was art for all 42. Every single one. You look at 1E and you look at some of the books like Horror Adventures or Occult, and they might have two or three on the page, but only illustrate one of them. Every single damn one. Awesome. So cool. Um, so we're each going to pick one that we want to talk about um, just to highlight a little bit of what you could see from one of these archetypes. Um, and keeping in mind that you can throw any one of these archetypes on any class. So it's not like 1E where you're locked into a class. Um, So you can mix and match however you like, a little bit like a versatile heritage. Let's start with Chris. Is there one in particular that you really like that you really want to talk about? Yes, there is. So I was coming at the archetypes with a very uh, focused uh, point of view. Um, It's very hard. This is a a skill. Skill wise, it's very hard for a character to get expert level in a skill at second level, unless you are a rogue and now an investigator. Um, but there are some archetypes out there that give you expert in more than one um, skill at second level that you can take. Um, some examples of these are archaeologists. I, I, I asked you to only talk about one. I only, only the one. one I want to talk about is herbalist. <laughs> There's a cool exploit with this because um, herbalist. The prerequisite for this is you take. Um, uh, the uh, there's a there's a feat skill feat that lets you use nature instead of uh, heal or medicine for skill checks, and natural remedy. Yep. If you take herbalist, you get expert in nature at second level, and if you have the assurance nature feat, um, you essentially take ten plus your proficiency modifier at second level, lets you auto succeed skill checks. Plus, there's some cool crafting um, herbal items and stuff. So there's a lot more flavor to all of those, but like definitely check out herbalist if your party needs heals. Absolutely. Um, next up, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Vigilante. This is something. This is the class that I wanted to see ported over into Second Edition, and I think they ported it over in a pretty graceful way. Um, a little bit like Tiefling. When I'm reading through Vigilante, there's not a whole ton that really stands out as something that I wasn't expecting. However, um, I think it's graceful that it's not a class into itself. You can put it almost as like a template on any other class. So you can build like an Avengers party where you have like a Hulk. This is how the original Vigilante was written. It was so diverse with the archetypes that it was, no two Vigilantes were the same. So this is probably the best execution of of how they could have done that. Sure, Absolutely, yeah. So you have like a Barbarian Hulk, you have like a Hawkeye Ranger, like you can flavor it any way you want and you can have 
like a caster uh, vigilante, a, a beat stick vigilante, a bard vigilante, which I really like. And there's some fun stuff in there. Um, you have a little bit of a minion, guys. So if you are somebody that has a familiar or an animal companion, part of your one minute to transform from that social to that vigilante, guys, is also transforming them, too. So you could have like... You could like dress up your dog or something. Oh, I, 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 they talk about like, oh, I have a wolf animal companion, but I trim him up to make him look like a regular dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, something I also really appreciated was the feats are social purview. Basically, you can take another archetype dedication um, that that applies to your social guys. So basically, you kind of act and function and look like one class in your social guys, and then when you transform into the vigilante, you're a completely different class. Of course, it's just another dedication, so it's not you're not a full cl- class in your social guys, but you really shouldn't be anyway. Um, so I think that was kind of cool. And then something that I wrote was just fun was many guises uh, feat. Um, basically, you can just look like a nor- in your social uh, outside of either your social or vigilante guides. You can just look like a normal NPC, and it is uh, undetectable, but you can't do anything, so you can just like look like a farmer. Or like, look like a baker. I'm a butler. Yep. (laughs) Going to infiltrate this party, not as my social or vigilante, but as the butler. Yeah. Um, All of the, all of the one-y stuff you'd expect. You have two guises, uh, perception check to discover your, your disguise. Um, You have to have your alignment step one, uh, alignment one step away from uh, between guises. Uh, You have a minute to change between the two, which can be reduced through a feat. Honestly, everything you're expecting, but like I said, and like Griffin backed up, uh, a, a very graceful way to make this viable in 2E without like just sinking into an entire class. Um, it's clean. It's workable. Um, it's pretty sweet. So, Steve, I asked the Discord for some questions about the APG. Uh-oh. And this is a good opportunity to bring in one asked by Jason where he said, where would you run an all-vigilante adventure? I think he's read the vigilante bit. Mm-hmm. Um, my thought on this is an adventure that's all focused in one city because vigilantes really operate not necessarily as a mechanic, but just on the concept of like renown. Like you, you need to know that that vigilante persona for it to mean anything. Right. And so I think something like a council of thieves or a curse of the crimson throne, where a lot of your adventure is just centered around one city Mm -hmm. would be really powerful to have everybody just take the vigilante dedication because you can all be completely different people for half the campaign. Yep. Ages of edge watch a policeman by day. A vigilante by night. (laughs) God. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. This city needs five heroes. (laughs) And then five more heroes at night. Five Five different heroes at night. We need five billionaires and five heroes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, Haley, is there an archetype you're particularly excited about? Okay, so I'm going to preface this with, I have not had the time to read every single archetype. There are plenty of them. I have read three, for sure. (laughs) So, kind of, the way that I chose my archetype for today was, I uh, scrolled real quick up and down the PDF, stopped it, and I stopped on four different ones, and then chose my favorite of those four. My favorite of those four was the Talisman Dabbler. Ooh, yes. 
So I absolutely adore this, and I love the idea of this, which is you basically can create these small magical talismans and affix them everywhere. So to me, this is the MacGyver, which is I can take these things and I will make something better of them. Amazing. And you just craft and put them on different things, and you already know every single formula for all common talismans in the core rulebook of your level or lower at level two so you can just make them you just know this you just have to find the things and i love the concept of this because it's to me very much a like uh a class where you're like looking for kind of more odd things and and creating stuff um and then by level four you're getting this um you can attach a talisman using only a bit of glue and some string and it's a quick fix to your uh, whatever you would like. And so you can actually affix or remove up to four talismans in one minute, which is also a lot. You can just throw like four magic items on your stuff. Mm. Um, again, I think that's fun. Um, and there are like a couple other things. And as, as you go further, you can create more things and, and kind of attach things even faster. And I... Uh, <laughs> I just think it's fascinating, this entire idea of like, just keeping magic and just kind of uh, a attaching things and finding things around you to like create more stuff. Yeah, it 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 sounds like something that would be right up your area. I remember we uh, we had you, last time we maybe it was either the last time or the time before you were talking about like the um the junk gun. Yes. Arkansas, oh, but there's yeah. also there's that also the scrounger like in here that that makes items out of nothing too. Well, yeah. I think I think it just I think part of the reason I wanted to pick it too is because I literally talked about a rat folk, which all they do is hoard things, and there's tinkerers within that. So like you could literally be a tinkering rat folk who also just tinkers and creates little magical things. <laughs> I think if you're a GM that uh, does the free archetype, you could be a rat folk that's a class that has the talis talisman uh, tinkerer and then has a scrounger. And you make your items and you attach talismans to them, attack with them, and then they, they disintegrate. Amazing. And you make a new one. Amazing. Yeah. Oh well. Well, you're, you sound all excited, Griffin. Do you got something you wanted to talk about, guys? I think the coolest thing about the, uh, in my opinion, about the archetypes released here is that they're the prestige classes from first edition are brought back. Oh yeah. As a as an archetype, Horizon Walker. Everybody wanted it. Everyone wanted it. Um, everybody played in Horizon. So, so what I'm going to talk about is the Eldritch Archer, which. I, I love, but unlike some of the archetypes in this uh, in this book, you can only start this at level six. So the first level of this archetype, it has to be taken at six instead of two, like a lot of the archetypes that start from the bottom. You need to be an expert in one type of bow. It grants you, if even if you can't cast spells, it grants you a cantrip from any spell list or an extra cantrip if you can cast. You get Eldritch Shot, which allows you to cast a one or two action spell with an attack roll into your bow and fire it. It's three actions total. You deliver the spell and the arrow. They both hit or miss. And so it's it's the, the beginnings of, I'm sure, what Paizo is going to put into Secrets of Magic with the Magus, which is um, spell combat, basically, but with bows. This is... This is kind of what, what gets really interesting. If you wanted to play a Hawkeye-type character or an, an Arrow-type character, this is it. Because not only can you gain spell progression from the feats, so you can get up to master spell proficiency and up to fourth-level spells, I believe, 
Uh, but there are feats that allow you to deal extra mental damage with your arrows. It starts at 2d6 and scales up to 4d6 to spend, depending on the runes you have on your bow. You have feats that allow you to select multiple types of magical arrows and just once per round, turn an arrow into a magic arrow. Uh, and, you know, of fourth level or lower, there's so much variety in the core rule book and this book that, I mean, you could be you could be shooting cold iron, you could be shooting frost arrows, whatever, you're Hawkeye. You can fire around corners. Ooh. You can ignore cover and concealment. You can get a phasing shot, which goes through walls and ignores armor and shields. Oh, Jesus. Murphy. The last the last feat is just death arrow. If this arrow hits and they fail a fortitude save, they die dead. I love this. This power. It's so good. Kill with one shot. So, I mean, just just shooting around corners and stuff. It's so flavorful, but also pretty powerful for an archer. So. Highly recommend the Eldritch Archer. Yeah, uh, that's going to be one to watch, guys. That looks really cool. Uh, Tim, what do you got for us? Yeah, so uh, I just have a couple of things to say. Um, keep it brief here. The uh, Playing along with the the prestige classes, the Dragon Disciple yes. was added as a, uh, as a replacement for the prestige class, which was the Dragon Disciple in first edition. Um, love this because the prerequisites are... Uh, either a sorcerer with a draconic bloodline, just like in first edition, but you can also just take it as a uh, dragon instinct barbarian, or you can take it as just a kobold. Prerequisites, a kobold. Like, <laughs> you're a kobold. Yeah, amazing. I, I, I know there was a little bit of that in first edition too. Scaled the With a kobold, yeah. yeah. Um, so they brought that back, and then um, what really excites me is doing like a dragon disciple barbarian who can... Through the through the archetype, get access to some sorcerer draconic bloodline feats or spells, excuse me, and so um, you can sort of have that that flavor of a, a casting barbarian. And then I wanted to touch on this a little bit because a lot of the archetypes cover this. Um, the beastmaster and the cavalier, both. Uh, I asked you to just talk about one, Tim. All right, I'm talking about three. The Beastmaster and the Cavalier are dipping into uh, some features from other classes that you don't have to take because you can take an archetype for them. If I want to be a barbarian and I want to ride a fucking horse, like, here's the the Cavalier archetype. If I want to be an oracle and I want to have an animal companion, here's the Beastmaster archetype. And you can be really, really good with those as well, depending on how many feats you invest. Well, I would say about 10 of these archetypes are just, you want to be something, but that doesn't exactly. get what what is what the flavor of your character yeah. is. Okay, pick the archer archetype. Pick the bastion archetype. Yeah. You want heavy armor? Like, bada exactly. big, bada boom. Here's a, here's a bunch of feats that let you be good at that. And that's why I think these archetypes are like the Pathfinder magic. Yeah, Where exactly. It's like, it's like you can make oh, anything Mix and now. match. It's great. Absolutely. Folks, there's still so much more in this book that we haven't even touched. Um, there's an entire section of the book that is spells, feats, and items. But we got, we really are pushing our longest zone of truth of all time. We still need to ascribe a final rating. And then there's a couple outstanding listener questions that we have to hit. I promise we'll get through those all relatively quickly. But to make sure that happens, feet, spells, and items, I'm just going to go around the table. If you have something in this category that you love, just go ahead and shout it out. Um, let's start with Chris. Okay. 
I've got one divine spell I want to talk about. You're you're starting out at Tui. You're a first level character. You're thinking about divine spells you want to take. One e magic stone was like not good. You know, you enchant a couple stones, you get a plus one to them. That's that's fine. That's whatever. Tui much much better. You can enchant. Uh, a number of stones based on the actions in a turn, one to three, and these stones are plus one striking disruptive uh, sling bullets. So you got a guy with a sling, um, you hit something normal, you're doing 2d6 damage to it, but if it's if you're in an undead campaign, that's where this really comes in, um, the disruptive does another d6 to undead. So at level one, you could be slinging stones that do 3d6 to undead, and they have a plus one to hit. Amazing spell, I think, at first level. Sweet. Uh, who else has something they want to talk about real quick? I have something. It's a focus spell for the bard. Focus spell five. Ode to Ouroboros. Your ode temporarily staves off death. The target's dying condition remains one below the value at which it dies. This doesn't help prevent death from effects that kill the target without increasing its dying condition, such as disintegrated and death effects. This is a reaction. Oh. Ooh. Ode to Ouroboros. Keep someone alive. Is that just one target or... One target, but it keeps someone alive. Nice. Keeps someone alive for a round. Boom. Clutch. Boom. Fifth level uh, focus spell, baller. All right, what else we got here? I have a, a spell called Mad Monkeys, which came back from first edition. Uh, you get to summon, as a third level spell, a bunch of monkeys around your opponent to take their stuff. Enough said. Dope. <laughs> I just have one more that's very unique. Uh, that that got released with second edition with this book. It's called Deja Vu, first level arcane and occult spell. You cast it on a target, fail a will save. They have to do everything they did in the last round exactly the same. If they don't, they get uh, stupefied one until the end of their turn. So if they if they like attack the barbarian and ran in a certain direction and then hid, they have to do that exact same thing again. Oh wow! Damn. Uh, for for me, I just want to talk about a, sp- a spell only for one little part of flavor text. Um, this is a spell called Grisly Growths. This is on the arcane and primal spell list. Basically, you cast a spell on somebody and they grow excess limbs and organs. Um, they take 10d6 piercing damage and then um, their, their allies, the folks that see this happen to a person, um, have to roll a save and a crit success. They're, un, they're unaffected. Success, um, uh, they, they take your creature does half damage. Basically, I, 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 never mind. Wait, I'm reading the wrong fucking spell there. Uh, <laughs> success, the creature's unaffected. Failure, the creature is sickened because they see something so horrifying uh, happening to their buddy. Crit failure, they're sickened too. So it's pretty wild. The only reason I want to talk about it is because this disgusting, disgusting uh, description of the spell uh, causes the target to grow excess limbs and organs, whether it be fingers multiplying until hands resemble bushes. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> that it gets is nasty. Foul. It's the, the smell of guitar shit. <laughs> the, the like flavor on a lot of these spells is incredible. Like just to have these descriptions available in your game. I don't know. It's cool. I agree with you. Um, folks, how do you feel about just rating the whole damn book now? I think it's time, right? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Well, I made a pretty simple scale. Because this is a book, oh, uh, shit. we're going to be rating this on a one to five scale. Um, it's a one to five scale on should it belong in Matumbe's library? Um, the So if you give it a five out of five, that is the bones land in a spiral. It's a perfect book. 
belongs in the library. Four would be the Eight Scrolls, which is Desna's holy text. Desna's, Desna and Matumbe are on good terms. Um, if you rate it a three, which is a very average score, it is a basic formulae book. Uh, some he uses, but isn't quite super thrilled about. Two, uh, the Asmodian Deceitful. This is, there may be some, uh, basically that translates to, there may be some uh, helpful things in here, but you don't really want anything to do with it. And then one would be Serving Your Hunger, or Ergothoa's textbook. However, you can add up to three bonus bird points for pleasant surprises you found in the book. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, birds themselves are worthless so you have to have two birds to crush into a point meaning that you have to have two pleasant surprises to crush into one bonus point so you can ha you can ascribe six extra birds which will get you three bonus points conversely if you've had unpleasant surprises or thing you didn't like about the book um, those are removed pants because pants don't exist in second edition <laughs> And of course, getting needlessly complex. And of course, each pair of pants has two legs. So an unpleasant surprise is one leg, and one leg of pants is useless by itself. So you need to have two things you don't like to combine into a pair of pants to take away a point. So basically, it's a very simple one to five score that can be scored up to eight, but as low as negative two. I appreciate your understanding of the mechanics. <laughs> Yeah. I thought maybe Paizo would listen to this. <laughs> someone, someone might be like, oh, yeah, they reviewed our book. Let's take a listen. They gave nope. it negative two pants. Negative two pants. Would anybody like to start? Well, I think uh, I think I got a, my head wrapped around this here, and I'll say that it definitely belongs in Matumbe's library because I can't imagine playing second edition without it. Mm -hmm. So if Matumbe is playing second edition, he would want it in his library. Uh, I have to say there are two pleasant surprises for me. One is the witch, mm -hmm. which is a pleasant surprise. And the second it ties into a little bit. Uh, well, no, actually, I'm changing my mind on my second bird. The second bird is the kobold. Uh, two things I, I wouldn't have really touched in first edition, and I love them now. Uh, no pants. Okay, so, so, that, so what was your base score? So that my base score is a five plus one is six, right? All right, so you're rating this a six out of five. This is above the bo uh, the bones land in a spiral. Yeah. Okay. I'll sit on that. Pretty pretty simple. Um, I as well, um, I actually will start with a five because I actually enjoy, believe it or not, I enjoyed reading this more than the core rule book. Yeah, I felt um, the same way. I think it's better, yeah. Yeah, there, I thought there was a lot to love here. Um, I'm going to give it a couple bonus points to I'm going to give it two surprise uh, birds, which will combine to one extra bird point. Like I said earlier, I think they did a, a pretty good job of um, how they executed the quote unquote evil races, which are a, you know, a, a pretty, a pretty poignant um, sticking point these days on, on, you know, TTRPG Twitter and stuff. I think they did a pretty good job of that. Also, um, from like, uh, inclusivity mindset, um, there's something in the book called the heartbound ritual, which is basically marriage. It's written into the text, um, that you can be heartborn, uh, heartbound with more than one person. Um, so that's, they're very open to stuff like polyamory. And additionally, the art they use for that is, um, the marriage that takes place in the Pathfinder comics between, um, the rogue and cleric iconic, which are both female. Mauriciel and Kyra. I think that's right. Yeah. 
So um, they get bonus points from me for that because I think that's super cool. Paizo, uh, over the last several years, has been very inclusive and awesome with that kind of stuff. Um, so where did I start? Did I start with a five as well? I think I did. That bumps it off uh, for me as well to a six out of five bones land in a spiral plus. Nice. This scale, dude. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> actually, I'm going to give it one leg of pants because I know we had some issues with the um, with some of the versatile heritages. I think maybe a little more thought could have gone into that. Um, but as we all know, if you have one leg of pants, it doesn't matter. Yep. So that doesn't affect my score. Got to put them on both legs at a time. Yeah. Yep. I uh, I would also, I think, I think people are, this is going to make people play 2E. People that were skeptical yep. about 2E, this is going to make them play it. It it makes it makes. Are you starting ten, your review? Yes, I'm starting okay. my review. It makes ten thousand options, a hundred thousand options here, and I'm giving it a bones land and a spiral. First off, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into my my surprises and my um and maybe huh? less than surprises. Uh, surprised by Dustwalker and delighted. Okay. Uh, I was. Completely surprised. I know I reviewed the swashbuckler. Surprised how unique they made that feel. Surprised that Panache is a state of mind. Loving it. I'm gonna I'm gonna get that as a t-shirt. Um <laughs> was genuinely surprised by the rare backgrounds and the amount of GM input that goes into those, I think was a phenomenal choice. And they're really unique and flavorful. Uh and and they make up a lot of the unique backstories you're playing they make mm -hmm. they make a mechanical which is very cool um and i was very surprised by the art and the archetypes so that would be four or two bird points for me um my the things that i kind of disliked um actually no i have another surprise i was surprised by the amount of new spells just okay. brand new spells i thought that was um for an advanced player's guide instead of just the core rule book, very impressive. Um, moving into the uh non delight, I guess there were there was kind of a glut of spells that I don't think I would ever use. Uh, very flavorful, but just if I was a spontaneous caster, I would never take them. Um, I had an issue with the versatile heritages and 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 in some of the additional things they gave to. Um, existing ancestries just because there's there's a couple where it's like 17th level feet is uh, you're connected to this plane you can cast plane shift twice a week like it, it because it happened multiple times it, I wasn't excited about it where I would have been excited if it was just for one thing um, and I think that's all I think that's all I got great, so great so you said you started at a bones land in the spiral yep Okay, from there, I had five birds. Of course, that rounds down to two bird points, brings you up mm -hmm. to a seven. Uh, two legs of pants brings that down by one. You're in the hand-holding club here with Tim and myself. We're all sixes. I think I think that's a fair score. <laughs> yeah. It, it blew my expectations away, honestly. I, I liked it a lot more than I thought. Um, so... For me, coming from someone who is a skeptic, as yeah. Griffin said, skeptic, this you think this will make skeptics want to play uh, 2E. So... Because I'm a skeptic, my base score starts right around the average three. Okay. That is where I have to start. Um, I think that there were some pleasant surprises, as in, I, I mean, I really, really, really... Where I think 2E as a whole super succeeds is the lore and backgrounds, ancestries, and heritage. So 
I thought the nice surprises were the backgrounds as a whole, again, continuing to get fleshed out. Um, and I also really liked the additional um, changeling versatile heritage, right? Like, I liked those. Um, so I feel like that is where it gets some bonus points. Um, I still am not 100% sold. I don't have, like, an, a super unpleasant thing that I would want to put into a pant leg, but um, I'm not <laughs> incredibly, like, pleased with, like, the way that Oracle ended up coming out. But I'm not, it's not, again, it's not an unpleasant surprise because I kind of don't, like, that's where I'm a little bit iffy still. I do love all of the archetypes, um, but I was, I haven't read through them enough to give them a whole bird point. One more bird point that, or not bird point, but bird that they get, though, is, uh, and Steve will appreciate this, and because mm -hmm. it's Matumbe's library, mm -hmm. um, Ropa of Climbing came back, so. It <laughs> yeah. I know, I was going to talk about it, but we oh, didn't have yeah. time. Yeah, so I do sit uh, right about that four or five um, mm -hmm. overall, and I think I think that's fair. And it does make me actually want to try to make more characters in 2E, which I haven't been super excited about before. And this book is making me very excited um, because I think it finally, I felt like what I didn't have was all the versatility and this has so much more. Mm -hmm. And this is what I've been waiting for because I like, as you all know, I like a little bit weird characters. Um, well, I guess we'll have you sold when they do the advanced ancestry guide in, <laughs> in <laughs> the winter. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'll be absolutely sold. Uh, but yeah, no, I love the versatility because the, the, the thing's been around for a long time. So this does make me want to play it. So I'm sitting right between that four and five because it this has tipped me over into wanting to play. I want to create a character out of this, but I think I could easily be pushed into a five. Okay, uh, so so you could be pushed into a five means you're sitting at a four, right? Because what I what four I did have what I, well, <laughs> no, 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 it's a very clear cut system. It's yes, very simple. So clear. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, you started at a three, which would be a basic formula book, but with your one bird point from two uh, pleasant surprises, that brings you up to the eight scrolls. Yes. I, v very, very simple. I have one yes. more bird. That's why I said yes. four and a half, but uh, oh, sure. obviously it's not a full it, point. A, a bird by itself is worthless. We all know okay, this. Okay, so, yeah. thank you. Yeah, sorry. Just, yep, <laughs> yes. it just it's get rounded off. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk to uh, the king of birds over here himself, Chris. Bird king. Uh, bring us home, all right? Yeah, just aside, I want to say the fact that you guys are using the pants and bird mechanics just speaks to the integrity of the of the, this add-on system as well. You know, oh yeah, and the okay. strength of the strength of its supporters. So, mm -hmm. um, personally, like in my perspective, um, if I'm thinking of the core rule book setting the standard at like a three, you know, like the average, what would you expect? Um, initially, the APG coming out, uh, going over it, felt like a four to me. Um, there was enough um, surprises like the um, archetypes, the swashbuckler, the the witch, um, and enough kind of the, the the you know legs and pants like the oracle, maybe some of the ancestries. I'm going like to need you to be very spells. specific about this. I'm being very general here. You know, I'm thinking generally. Mm. Um, so it still comes out like independently from before hearing Haley. It was like a four and a half ish to me, which would be a four. Um, couple other books coming out to flesh this more out. Like I'm still very excited to play Tui, but I'm sitting around a four on this release, I think. Okay. That's, that's very fair. So we have, uh, if I can recap the scores, Tim, myself and Griffin gave this a six out of five. Haley and Chris gave it a four out of five. I think overall we're pretty happy with this book. Oh, five yeah. average. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Um, do we want to do anything? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I got some questions actually from the, 
Discord about the Advanced Players Guide. So I know we had some questions about uh, Chris and Tim. We'll hit those at a later date. Um, yeah, I, I just just as an aside, I did make the call that Haley, Chris, and Tim are going to be on the show. If you have any specific questions for them, let us know. We just don't have time for them, guys. But the good news is, unless something very unfortunate happens, fingers crossed it doesn't, you guys are coming back on the show at some point. That'd be great. I'm inviting you on. Yay. You don't have a choice. Oh. You don't have a choice. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, if you want dinner tonight. Okay. So. No, I'm excited. First question <laughs> is from Jason. What's the background slash archetype you're least likely to choose, but also love? So um, Haley raised her hand. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm so, so excited about this one. Uh, it's a rare background. So number one, I love the rare backgrounds. Just going to overall say that. But. There's one I would, I absolutely love the flavor of and would never, ever, ever play. I don't think, I don't know. I'm weird. Maybe I would. Uh, it's called Returned and you basically, you die and are miraculously returned with the knowledge of realms beyond death uh, and a stronger leak so to life. So Walker. <laughs> yes. But some dead and undead souls may feel a strange kinship with you just because it's there. And again, I just, I just, I love the like lore of that. But there's so many other ones that I think I I don't know if I'd actually play it. But it is just yeah. like a very funny thing to me that you could be walking around and like fighting maybe a skeleton and it's like, hey, were you, were you like my brother? Like I don't know, were you, weren't you my friend? Bro, did we hang like out in the bones land? <laughs> right. Do you, were you were you like six in front of me in line? That's and that's <laughs> what I love about it is there's like this weird opportunity for role play that I wouldn't have expected. But I don't think I would personally choose it because I like the yeah. other ones better. Mine would probably be the dandy. Uh, it's one of those one of those what? archetypes where it's called the dandy. Yeah, but I thought this was background. It's background oh. or archetype. Oh, I thought, I, I I thought didn't it was hear that. either or. I didn't okay. hear the archetype. Yep. I yeah, I was just going to say the, the dandy is uh, something I was excited about initially. Then I was like, oh, man, to give up a class feat for this, though, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but a super fun like NPC archetype. Agreed. I think so too. Yeah. So um, the one, the like, there is an interesting archetype called celebrity that I would eventually like to play, but I'm not going to because I'm saving it. Because there was an, another question about like if Tim and I were playing, if we would design each other's character. I'm going to design an e-girl for Tim, and a celebrity <laughs> archetype is perfect. Oh, no. for that. So that's coming up. I'm Every, not going to play it. I'm going to let Tim play it. Uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody scries on him. Yeah. yeah. I have Chris playing Oracle probably. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Magic Warrior, which is one of the archetypes in this book. It's super flavorful, but it requires a very specific character concept um, because you have to be from the Wongi. You have to be learning from the Ten Warriors. Like You have to wear a mask all the time and can never reveal yourself to anyone. But you get cool stuff. Like you can, you can shape shift into the animal that your mask is of, and like there's mm. there's some cool stuff about it, which I like. But I would never role play a character like that. I just wouldn't do it. It's like oh, a yeah. Mandalorian type thing, almost. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I, I guess for me, uh, and this is a little bit more of a general answer, but I think I would have a, a very difficult time um, doing a, a or attempting like a more traditional multi class, where like you have where you take the dedication or whatever for another full class. I just feel like I would have trouble with that with the 42 archetypes and stuff um, when I can just have like a kind of not great version of the other class. And I know there's mechanical ways where it works really well, but you'd have to be after yeah. like a specific feat. And a lot of these, like they, they actually 
come with those same feats from yeah. Coral. Yeah, that's that's what makes it yeah. very cool in this book is that like normally you'd go ranger to get this feat, but you could just go dual weapon warrior and get it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I, and, I and only invest two feats that, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Be okay. Well, cool. I um I have another one here, and this might be more for the main party, but you guys are welcome to chime in. Is there enough here to rebuild the characters from the podcast at level one and have it be close enough to play them as intended? My answer to this as the GM is that you could get a close enough version of Ik, Freya, and Matumbe. Even Matumbe, I think you could do an investigator with the cleric dedication and get close enough. Yeah. And again, this is asking at level one. Uh, do I think you could do an occultist yet? There are spells, like a first level spell is object reading. They've incorporated some of the occultist stuff into this book, honestly, but I don't think you can do everything an occultist can do with any of the classes that exist right now. Plus, you don't have Yang yet. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a, that was exactly my answer. I feel as though Eclipse just can't quite be done yet. Yeah, I, f- I feel like... Uh, occultist being as popular of a cult as the class it is in first edition that it's got to be coming out at some it point. Has to. Yeah, I feel like it's going to happen. I'm curious because much like a vigilante, it's very diverse in what it can do, and you see mm-hmm. that they make a vigilante yes. like an archetype. So I, I'm just I'm wondering what they'll end up doing with it because it's a class that's a jack of all trades, and if it's a jack of all trades, then another class can do that other thing better. We'll see. I just don't know that Vigilante had the love that people have for a cult. Oh, definitely so, not. Yeah. <laughs> so shut I, your mouth. hundred percent. I understand what you're saying. We'll see. I don't know where, how it'll fall. So finally, I, I have a question, uh, from Ratha, uh, and those previous ones were from Jason. Um, I guess question wise, how do you feel about the archetypes that are really niche and have a couple options to add on to a class? He gives the examples poisoner, uh, talisman tinkerer, skull trickster versus the ones that could almost be a class unto themselves. Beastmaster, vigilante, marshal, cavalier. You certainly don't need to take everything into account and we won't, but just in general, how do we feel how both of those have been handled? I think it's great. Um, I think it's 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 good that you can have a character that maybe doesn't want to dive as far into an archetype as maybe another character. They don't have to. It's just a, a little bit of a flavor burst. You're good. Or a really deep dive into something and you're good. You could play it either way. It's variable. I think that's what I also like about it is because I, I do feel that with 1E there are some archetypes that are just like less intense. Yeah, um, yeah, it definitely exists. It definitely exists in 1E already and it's just about like I want to flavor myself a little bit this way. And you can just kind of do that um, versus like, or you could do a deep dive and like totally change your class. Like I have with eclipse um, or at least it feels like I've changed my class like pretty significantly. Um, and so I think I like the, I like that versatility. Yeah. I mean, you have a Matumbe and then you have an Ikmer, like a Matumbe. Yeah. <laughs> like, nothing about him is actually a, an inquisitor <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. where it's like, I'm a fighter. I just like armor more. Yeah, remember yeah. you can you can just take a you know one dedication feat and go back into your class feats. Like yeah, you, as long as you don't take another dedication. Yeah, like you can't take another one without taking two more. But uh, you know, I was looking to the for the cavalier for this. It's like oh, I just want a horse. I'll take three of the feats. Yeah, uh, to get mm-hmm. a horse. But if I want to have the cavalier's charge and the order and all the the banner and all that shit, you can just like continue to go down that hole. 
which I think is cool, versatile. Uh, I think Paizo was very intentional with writing this stuff. So you have archetypes that go level two to eight. You have archetypes that go six or eight to 18. And you have everything in between. And I think they wrote the ones that are more niche to be played more niche. And they wrote the ones that are supposed to, I mean, I guess in, in their mind, the full concept of something like a marshal is that you take a decent amount of the feats. You can see it in like the marshal having three feats at a certain level versus the poisoner having five total feats. Right. Yeah. It, it's just, it's written that way. And I think the powerful thing about that is if you wanted to do, if you wanted to be very archetype driven, you could take poisoner and then you could go into shadow dancer and they wouldn't have to overlap and you could be, you could fulfill both and you could go early archetype, late archetype and play completely differently. Absolutely. I, it, it really puts the power in the player's hands and I really appreciate that. With that, uh, we already answered uh, bipolar pop tarts question about uh, you know kind of the things that we like, things we didn't like. Um, I don't think any of us has built a game breaking combo in the APG in the, in the several days it's been out. So um, so I'm going to skip that one. Working on it. It's in the lab. It's cooking. All right, guys. Well, if that wraps everything up, I, I just want to take one final moment to thank our panel for coming on, for cramming the APG in the last week or two. Um, it's 300 pages of text and we divided it up a little bit. But thanks for doing the work ahead of time to put together this monumental um, Zone of Truth episode with Griffin and myself. Much appreciated. All three of you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, yeah. pleasure. Yeah. I'd be here. Thank you. And, and once again, I'd also like to thank Paizo for giving us uh, slightly early access to this material. Um, it was it was really cool of them to, to flip it to us. And I really enjoyed diving into this. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's time that we might want to wrap this thing up. So, um, Tim, Haley, Chris, you've all succeeded your will save. Is there anything you'd like to say before we sign off? Tim? Uh, not really. I, I've got to say, I've been enjoying chatting with you guys more and more on the discord. If you're listening to this and you're not on the discord, I want to talk to you too. So, uh, get on there, look at build your own character for me to dump all my characters from the APG. Go <laughs> Haley. Um, I just, yeah, I want to say like, if you were kind of skeptical about the APG and want to talk to someone else who is kind of skeptical, I am all ears because this is the one time where I am feeling much more excited to play 2E. So I would love to talk through with anyone else who is kind of on the edge um, and maybe convince you to to step my way, which is more excited. <laughs> all right, Griffin. Well, I think that does it. Whoa, so, whoa, whoa, yeah, maybe we should, whoa, uh, whoa. Oh, there's another guy here. The oh. HLP doesn't want you to know about this, but um, if you... It's because it's too powerful, but if you look at the divine spells, investigate the interaction between animate dead and final sacrifice. Okay, cool guy. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, sure there's, I'm sure there's nothing else that Chris wants to talk about. Roll your credits, then I'll rant. All right, folks, you know how this works when we have Chris on the show. Um, we've talked a lot about second edition tonight. We're going to roll the credits here. I'm going to, uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask Griffin to take us home. But after that, Chris has something he wants to say about the bird points. Some things that were added with the advanced player's guide. So Griffin, what do you got for us? Uh, I guess I got to be ready for this. So everybody finish your drinks. I'll be doing the same. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. All right, here it comes. What do you got? All right, guys. 
So we oh knew. I said it with such like a wild <laughs> eyes. Yeah. We Does anybody knew. have booze left up here? I'm out. I'm I out have too. some. I've had some the whole time. Guys, we knew that there would be more bird point mechanics in the APG. I emailed, J- before my Google account got disabled, I emailed Jason Bowman <laughs> too many times for him to ignore. And so we knew that the designers would add it in. Now, when I got the APG and looked at it, I didn't initially see any bird point mechanics. So I was like, what's going on here? So I stayed up for three days without sleeping. I didn't eat for three days. I only drank from stagnant pools of water I found outside. And when I looked at the APG, the voices in my head read the mechanics to me. And this is what they said. There are rituals to summon birds. <laughs> there is a ritual to summon birds. And you can use those birds to, for, to convert into bird points. That's there. That's in it. You just do the same thing I did, and you'll see it, too. Also, Paizo, in all their thoughtfulness, understood the impact, the environmental impact that consuming birds at the level that we're consuming them for bird points would have on the uh, on, on the world. So, I wish you guys could see Chris's eyes right now. They're bugged out. He hasn't blinked yet. <laughs> no, I haven't. No, this is important. I have to tell the people. So, with the loss of birds worldwide in Galarian... There's no birds to eat the insects, so there are much more plagues now. So there are environmental plague rules they introduced in places huh? where bird points have been consumed voraciously. That includes locust plagues, cicada plagues. There are worm swarm templates based in areas where there are no more birds because the worms are free to do whatever they want. His voice is trembling. Worms that walk. Yes, the worms that walk are in now. Also, there's a cool archetype called Bird Handler. Um, what? At level oh, yeah. two, you can take a bird point archetype dedication for bird handler, which is you can keep two birds in both of your hands, and in two actions, you can compress them in both hands if you have the strength to form bird points, and it doesn't count towards your multiple attack penalty. So you could compress two birds with two actions, and then use one of those bird points as an action. And you keep a hand free. Yeah, and I, well, you have a bird point in it, but yeah, right. you have a hand free too. It's free. So that's what I found. But did you see the part where two tangos can run as fast as they can uh, right at each other? And then make one super bird Well, point? Haley, yeah, it takes two to tango. Tango, everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you. Um, but that's what I found. Um, the voices are continuing to talk to me, so I'll find more out later. But that's initially the cool stuff I saw heard more or less in the APG. I heard it in the APG audiobook in my brain. <laughs> so when Secrets of Magic comes out, oh, no. <laughs> do you expect to receive similar messages? Yes, I do. I do. They've screamed that at me to wait for more instruction. <laughs> to wait to see what the magic mages can do with bird points. screamed it. Well, the summoner is going to be summoning birds. It's yep. the most convoluted release of a first-party, third-party content I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you know, his Kickstarter hit a certain level. <laughs> Dear God. Uh, all right. Well, if you stuck with us this long, sorry. Yeah, sorry. This was two and a half hours long. <laughs> I'm not sorry. I think it was all worth it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was all worth it. Very worthwhile. Thanks again, folks. We'll see you next time.